You can, you are not a one-track mind. You're a four-track mind. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Directors Club. I'm Patrick Rapol, and I am Jim Laskowski. Couldn't be more excited for t- today's show. Um, we have with us a very special guest, Mr. Jay Cheel of the documentary blog, Film Junk, and he's um, an amazing filmmaker in his own right, a documentary filmmaker. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thanks for having me, guys. Glad you could make it. And, uh, you know, I mentioned this when I had the Row 3 guys on that, uh, you know, for a while I'd been listening to primarily one film podcast and then all of a sudden i discovered film junk and the cinecast and i found exactly what i wanted from a podcast a movie podcast and uh just gotta thank you um very enthusiastically about uh about film junk because it's one of my all-time favorite shows to listen to and um all that that's yeah that's awesome to hear i mean we've been doing it for so long now that um, it's funny thinking back um, before some people started listening to it. And I, I think we spent probably a good like three years doing the show with maybe 10 listeners <laughs> to the point where when we did junk mail, it would be uh, Corey who is in, <laughs> he he's, calls himself the goon in right. the message boards or whatever. Mm-hmm. He would be the one sending in all of our mail under different names so (laughs) it's nice to uh you know it get to a point where people are actually listening to it and enjoying it and uh going out with the film now showing the film around it's it's been awesome having people film junk listeners coming out to check it out and saying hi and so uh I'm, i'm it's nice to hear that all of the "Quote unquote work we've put into it uh, is appreciated by some people. Yeah, and it's directly responsible for me wanting to start my own show, and you know the movie club podcast. Obviously, all all like that entire community is just exactly what I want from podcasting. Like the sense of humor, the movies you cover, just everything about it. Just that's exactly what I've been looking for because film spotting became a little dry." and almost too structured and they can't swear so <laughs> right I, I think the fact that we still do it for free right and um treat it just as getting together with friends to talk about films i think that's kind of helped like we haven't really been pushed to um tighten anything for yeah. any reason so <laughs> right that's never yeah i look forward to it every week it's never you know, never feels long-winded or anything. I I enjoy when you guys tell personal stories or just you know geek out over movie movies in general. So awesome, good times. Yeah. So for this episode, we're going to be covering director Errol Morris, mm-hmm. and you know I uh, I know Jay is a huge fan of his, and I'm sure he's influenced your work as well. So we're going to definitely have a lot to say about his two films, Gates of Heaven as well as Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. Absolutely. And uh, before we do that, though, uh, we figured in this week, since we have a, you know, a documentary filmmaker who uh, 
you know, just just finished. Actually, very good documentary. If you get a chance, Beauty Day is the name of the documentary. It's very good. I actually have watched it twice now. Um, I liked it more the second time. Uh, Same. Yeah. Cool. Um, but uh, we figured uh, instead of talking about what we watched this week, we'd uh, take this opportunity to, you know, ask a few questions about the process. Because I think at least, you know, as far as I stand, I'm not, I, I, you know, I think people have a pretty good idea of, you know, how fiction, quote unquote, fiction films are made and, you know, from screenplay to editing and all that. But, you know, sort of documentaries are kind of more of a, a mystery and they're sort of, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of, um, you know, they're less planned and they're, you know, it feels like and. They just sort of happen, and so I thought we'd ask a few questions like that with uh, what I'd like to call a serious discussion. That's the, <laughs> that's the, that's the name. I, uh, maybe maybe, maybe we'll edit in. We'll edit in a better title for the segment for sure. Couldn't think of one. We couldn't think of one. We're stuck with this title. Such shitty title. Nah, 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 nothing rocks with discussion except discussion. So here's a discussion, it's serious. No lie, have a discussion with the discussion guy. Discussions, serious in nature, that ain't no discussion. Doobity dump, just for a minute, let's all do the bump. Bump, bump, bump. Yeah! Now, Beauty Day is about uh, a, uh, a character, um, a man uh, who was on. Uh, uh, Canadian, I guess, basic cable uh, goes by the name of Captain Video. I don't have the name in front of me. His Ralph, first name's Ralph. Yeah. Ralph. What's his Ralph name? Ralph Zavadil. Zavadil. There we yeah. go. Um, now, uh, what sort of what what was the initial prompting? The very first spark that made you want to that started this film. Uh, um, well, I used to watch the Captain Video show when I was a kid, so. Mm-hmm. I was a big fan of Captain Video, and I was working at. Um, a video game company, which uh, a couple of the film junk guys uh, worked at as well. And um, a guy that I worked with said, like, Cap Video came up somehow, and we kind of shared our, um, you know, favorite episodes and whatnot. And so he mentioned to me that Ralph was actually on Facebook. And so I, I joined Facebook and contacted him, and I was looking for ideas for you know a possible at that point a short documentary to film and put online and i thought it would be cool to showcase the cat and video show and um you know let people see that there was this crazy totally underground um cable access show that predated jackass uh by you know quite a few years and um that led to a, a year of emailing back and forth with Ralph and, you know, uh, convincing him to, to take part. And then uh, we started filming and it quickly became apparent that there was, you know, a, a feature in this. There was a feature there in his story. And so I quit the video game job and started filming full time. And uh, I think we shot for around two years on and off and I edited the film in that time as well. Um, and we just finished it last March. Okay. So how long was the production process in total? Um, if you count the, the courting process between me and and Ralph emailing back and forth, it was around three years, but I wouldn't count that. I, I, it's more like just over two. 
And what what was the uh, what was the spark that sort of made you realize there was a lot more there um, than just a, than just a short uh, you know feature for online? I think it was mainly everyone telling me that it, it should be a feature because <laughs> I <laughs> I was the the person who was kind of unsure about that and and people kept saying you know you should make a make a full length documentary with this and I was kind of sick of doing these. I kept doing these half hour shorts that, you know, they're too long for short film festivals. They're too short for feature festivals. So I was ready to do a feature. And when people kept saying that they thought it should be a, a move, a full movie, I, I, um, you know, started paying more attention to what Ralph was saying about personal things. And when, you know, he, he, uh, gave us the contact info for some guys that he was working on a pilot show with. And then one of those guys told me about Ralph's ex-girlfriend who was a, a, a pro bike racer. And then that led to that whole uh, side story. So the, the more, more of the personal stuff started coming out as me and Ralph got to know each other better. And so, um, it, it just became more and more clear that, you know, it'd be interesting to get to know Ralph in this film as well, not just the Captain video show. So and with, then, of course, with, when um, the whole 20th anniversary thing came up, that kind of really sealed the deal. Yeah, I was going to ask about that particular aspect because I, you know, I assume that with this kind of filmmaking, that the story sort of develops organically through, you know, just having conversations with him as opposed to mapping it out, uh, you know, in, in pre-production. So, like, yeah. learning more about, you know, you basically found the story yourself through conversations with him over time. And yeah. that's that's a really interesting process to me because that's that is kind of different from traditional filmmaking. Yeah, I mean you you're not totally sure what um other secrets he has, you know, <laughs> that he may not have been willing to to give up to someone who he just met versus, you know, spending a year shooting together. It, you know, it gets to a point where suddenly he's you know handing me a vhs tape with video footage of his uh pot grow room saying you know <laughs> you might might be able to get some use out of this so you you know the relationship gets to a point where there's just some trust there and and a level of comfort to to get more personal and um and i mean the 20th anniversary thing of him you know, revisiting his show 20 years later after kind of the first Captain Video episode, it that whole thing, I mean, I always get at the, the festivals people asking how did that come up and did the documentary have any uh, influence. influence on that? And it definitely did. I mean, Ralph wouldn't have even been thinking about Captain Video if I didn't contact huh. him and make him, you know, pull out all of his old videotapes and his cat and video outfits. And so it, it did get to a point where it was like, you know, I, he's talking about this show and I was asking him uh, numerous times, would you ever think about doing this again in the interviews? And it just got to a point where he, I guess was kind of overwhelmed by the nostalgia and, and thought, yeah, maybe it would be fun. Hmm. Um, now uh, it's, uh, you know, it's uh it it's actually a very you know stylish uh film very you know visually interesting and 
Um, I believe you you make use of, in fact, of Errol Morris's inter intertron. What's the what's the term he uses? Interatron. Interatron. Yeah. That's right. <clears throat> Yeah, but mine is the uh, low-budget version of the Interatron because <laughs> the main reason, like I did want them looking into the camera, but the main reason is I was also the, the cinematographer and uh, camera operator. So when I'm doing my interviews, I'm mainly, you know, I am looking at them now and again, but I'm I'm also zooming in and I'm reframing and, and everything. So I'm I'm looking at the viewfinder quite often. So I, I kind of would just tell them, you know, look into the lens and I'm looking in the viewfinder at you. So this is how we're, we're going to have to make some sort of weird cyber eye contact this way. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, my, my question is um, now when you don't know exactly what film you're having and you're sort of in the initial stages of, of filming and accumulating footage and interviewing him um, now, w- w- what kind of decisions you know, because there's there's a lot of uh, sequences like um, right after the opening credits, there's a very interesting sequence of him driving to work. And it's is actually like for a moment there, I thought uh, this this movie had uh, like feet um, like sort of fictional aspects because it's shot like a just like any other film where, uh, you know, it, it goes from a long shot to inside the van to, you know, right beside the van. Um, how do you make those kind of decisions about how to. Um, you know, shoot the footage. Um, I just knew I, I wanted to see Ralph going to work and that the the kind of look of um, of uh, St. Catharines, there's some areas that are, are pretty interesting looking along the canal. So, and that's the way he would drive to work. So I, I said, you know, let's film Ralph going to work. And, and that specific, like, you know, to completely crush the uh, magic of uh, <laughs> documentary filmmaking, like shooting him driving over that bridge. The reality of that is me in the back of Robert's van, Ralph's friend, Robert, who's also in the film, Robert driving with his, his minivan uh, door open and me shooting Ralph driving in his van. Oh, really? And then, <clears throat> yeah. And then, um, you know, getting the close up, getting the view from the front, uh, the view from behind the side view and and whatever and uh cutting that together and then going to work with ralph on a, a i think it was on a completely different day um but i mean that's the sort of uh i think that's the kind of stuff we'll be talking about with errol morris right. and and you know the idea of how much legroom is there in documentary filmmaking to stage things or to recreate things and i think personally that there's a lot of legroom um i i just think that if i if i filmed ralph driving to work in a ferrari in a completely (laughs) different town to a completely different job then maybe that might be a problem but um i i the main goal for me was just to show the environment that he's in and where he works so yeah, I think one of the the sequences that I responded to so strongly was just the creation of that molded oh, metal yes. mask, and then not not too long after that, just him uh, going through the uh, editing stages for his anniversary special. And I've I've always been interested in in post production myself, so um, I was just curious how daunting was it to go through all those archived 
videotapes yeah, about, of his. Yeah, about how many like hours of footage did you have in... Like what's what's your approach once you have this all? I mean, you said you edited as you went along, so I guess that was, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I edited as I went along, but um, like the the scene you're talking about with the the uh, Captain Video Cruiser thing, mm-hmm. that's another situation where like uh, the weekend that weekend, Robert and Ralph. Um, designed that Captain Video Cruiser and surprised me with it on, I think it was on the Monday, and said, uh, you know, Ralph kept sending emails saying, oh, we've got something uh, planned for the a skit and, you know, you're going to you're gonna love it. And he sent me a picture of the Captain Video Cruiser and I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> but they built it on the weekend while I was not there, you know, to <laughs> surprise me. Um, so I was like, okay, you know, it, it, that is awesome. You know, I can't wait to see what you guys do with it. It's going to be cool to shoot it, but we have to like see you guys making this. So, and just to, to clarify the, the head, the glass head, that was yeah. all shot as they were making it. But the final construction of the, the cruiser, right? I actually had them just take a couple pieces off and then put it back on. And my whole idea behind that was, okay, if, if this is going to end up having to be something we're staging, then I'm going to stage it like to the nines and <laughs> it's going to be choreographed and it's going to, you know, there's a shot of them putting the wheels on it and they like crisscross in front of the camera and, yeah. you know, put wheels on either side and, you know, the flame th- thrower thing and all of that stuff. Oh, so he's yeah, lighting a cigarette. That's so, <laughs> such a great shot. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that's, that's not the kind of stuff that like, you know, it's definitely not cinema verite, right? Like right. It, it's it's lit. It's you know when he's welding on on the bike, I brought a fog machine. Like I I, <laughs> I put I sprayed some fog in the shot so that you could see smoke from the weld and so that it would light up whenever he would spark that that weld. And um, but I mean the reality of the situation is they built this cruiser to use in his show. I just missed it because they surprised me with it. So in my mind, that means, okay, here's an opportunity to do a cool montage. Absolutely. And it worked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, and I think that's a sort of a good, I do have one last question about the specifics of the film. Uh, how do you know when you're done with a movie like this, um, which good you don't have a script to edit scene by scene to give you a structure. Right. So how do you know when the st- structure you've given you know these scenes because even editing as it go along putting it together as a final film how do you know when you're done with something like that um i think with a deadline (laughs) with with everyone telling you to stop okay um i i still watch it and i'm completely aware of all the flaws of the film and you know i see things that i think why did i keep that in there or why was that so long? Or <clears throat> so there are definitely things that, if I had a chance, I would continue to work on. But you know, you just have to get to a point where it's like, and mainly it was the fact that we had our premiere at the Museum of Modern Art, so there was a deadline for that. Right. Um, so it had to be finished for that. So that pretty much is what stopped it. But and it's even harder when you're your your own editor. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because you, Steven, Soder- Steven Soderbergh style, you uh, directed, uh, shot, and edited this movie yourself. Right. Right. Um, and it, it with the shooting of the film, it was me and my friend Roman uh, who who uh, helped do everything uh, that, uh, you know, like setting up lights and, and arranging interviews and getting the release form signed. And so it was lit- it was literally a, cr- a two man crew. And quite often it was just me and Ralph. Um, so there there was it was a big undertaking, but the editing was definitely the most challenging thing. It was just the flipping the the structure around and trying to figure out the best way to present the story and and there's you know there's a lot of sort of like exposition in this film like having to introduce people to the cat and video show introduce people to ralph um all the little things that happen along the way um it just it it was at a point where it felt like very segmented and you know here's this new plot twist and then that's resolved and then here's this new plot twist and then that's resolved and i still don't think i totally uh, crack the code on how to present it as naturally and organically as possible. I still think that it probably could have used another couple of months to, to work on that. But, you know, it, it was uh, my first time editing a feature documentary. So it's, there are lessons to be learned and, and lesson things that I've taken from that experience that I will apply to the next one. I'm definitely uh, excited for that. Yeah, do, do you have anything in mind for the uh, the next project, or can you talk about it very briefly if you have a subject in mind? Or yeah, it's um, it's going to be a, a documentary on time travel. Yes, <laughs> which is, <laughs> it's a feature version, feature length version of a short I did in film school Obsess- called Obsessed and yeah. Scientific. Yeah, I saw that. It was great. Yeah. So it's um, going to like. All new. I'm not using anything from the original short, but um, a lot of the people who appear in the original will be in this new version, and it'll it'll be kind of a, a look at the John Teeter story and uh, the realities of time travel and the kind of influence of pop culture on real science. I guess. Ooh, yeah. I like the sound of that. Mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, now I, f- I think uh, I'd like to sort of transition into more uh, sort of general talk about documentaries. Um, we've we've all picked out uh, our top three, or some of our top three, not yeah. necessarily in order. Uh, docs. Um, uh, Jim, do you want to start? Yeah, um, it's tough to narrow it down because I th- the documentary genre is one of my favorites, and it. I, I just enjoy learning about people's lives and you know hearing these candid conversations with really interesting people um, and Jay actually had mentioned at one point on a film junk episode this series of films that was also kind of like a uh, like a sociological case study of Muncie Indiana and this this series of documentaries is pretty much just known as the Middletown series, and there were two segments in particular that I really responded to. I think the whole thing is really great. Like every like some are shorter than others, some are feature length, 
Um, but the, the two that s- stood out were uh, Family Business, which is all about this one family struggling to keep their um, pizza parlor from going bankrupt. And I found just the interaction, the interplay with the whole family, like, you know, not just at the dinner table, but over at the place of business to be really interesting juxtaposition of how they interact with one another. And that whole segment was really, really um, interesting. But the other part of that series was uh, 17, which is, it's a, it's a lot like kids, only, um, you know, less twisted and vulgar. It's very, it, it's pretty much just all raw footage of, you know, teenagers hanging out at parties or with their parents and it's it's a one of the most genuine portrayals and it, you know it's 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 better than american teen which i i did like too but this is you know this was obviously filmed way back i, I think it was in the in the in the 80s if i'm not mistaken um but no this the middletown series i don't it's not easy to find but it's something that i absolutely would encourage everyone to seek out it's one of my favorite series of documentaries and thanks, Jay, for recommending that, by the way, because I sought that out and thought it was really something. There's, there's a moment involving a Bob Seger song in that, in that uh, 17 segment that really hit me hardcore. It's- <laughs> yeah, that, that whole sequence is amazing. The whole, like, yeah. Thinking about the camera crew spending that, in, that whole night with that group of people in that house, is yeah. I, I love that whole series as well yeah and family business is amazing yeah i mean the dinner table scene near the end of the film is pretty powerful Mm -hmm. it's a very intimate series where you get you get you get really deep into into, personally into these people's lives so often you feel like you know again again sometimes you know with documentaries you feel a little voyeuristic like my god i can't believe i'm seeing something this you know, revealing about a person, but I think that's what draws me to the the, the genre as well. So that's my number three. You, you want to just go ahead and do the other? Oh, yeah, I'll do the other two as well. We'll just not do way. the roundtable discussion. But uh, number two would probably be Gimme Shelter, which is one of my favorite, uh, you know, you know, music documentaries that highlights something that they just capture on film as it happens and the just the shock value of seeing that on 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 camera is pretty devastating and it sort of also represents the death of the ideology or you know the sort of hippie mentality of the late 60s and how that all sort of collided in in the worst way possible at this Rolling Stones concert at Altamont and that that whole film I thought was again very revealing of how a band responds to a tragedy you know and faced with you know the, the consequences of it, and watching it in the um, editing room. That that whole sequence is really amazing. I don't know. I, I and just even watching them record, even when it's not about the concert, I think is really good. Um, and I think I'll, I think also it's it's worth saying this is the stone. It's like the Stones at their at their peak. Yeah. Like it's it's it also works as like a really fucking good concert film. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's absolutely one of my favorites. And number one, it's 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 a tough call because I was I was debating about going with an Errol Morris film, but I'm 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 going to go with with Paradise Lost, the uh, the 
the the the everybody knows what that is the uh, yeah. the, the child murders. Like I just saw that for the Hills. first time last week. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As sort of preparation, I watched a lot of other documentaries. And that it was one. it was the f- first documentary I can remember just having an insane visceral reaction to, emotional reaction, just like everything about it uh, really affected me to where I was getting angry as I was watching it, and then the response afterwards and just watching you know the, the the controversy and the case build over time and just witnessing the failure of our justice system and you know obviously it's, <laughs> I had seen this while j- just getting out of high school and dealing with all that awkwardness I, I experienced and you know thinking Christ this could have been me or one of my friends going through something like this so there was the empathy factor but also it just really works as you know, interesting courtroom well, I, case. It's well, it's and it's not even what really does it for me is just like the fucking access they had to. Yeah, just seeing how a community reacts, um, not mm-hmm. even just the specifics of the mistrial, right? Um, which is uh, it's shocking to watch, though. It's that, just like some of the things I'm going really. You're, I mean, you're the overlooking same, certain uh, things? I mean, it, well, yeah, but I mean, just like, I think it's even more shocking, just like in the same sentence, these people talking about, you know, how, you know, strong, you know, strong Christians they are, and then talking about how they're going to kill these yeah. kids if they ever come out in public, like. Right. There's a lot of hypocrisy going there's, on. There's, I mean, there's just, it's, it's all, it's just this sort of fascinating, like, impotent rage that they don't know how to deal with it, and they can't. Right. It's just, it's a great film. It's another portrayal of, uh, of a scapegoat. Which also leads to the most recent thing I watched, uh, which was on ESPN, called Catching Hell, which is the story of Steve Bartman. And uh, he, he interfered with the, 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 the foul ball at the Chicago Cubs oh, playoffs yeah. game. Okay. This Everybody's got to find this. I mean, it was just on ESPN. It was originally supposed to be a 30 for 30 short, but they turned it into a feature-length film, and it's one of my favorite films of the year. It's great. Really? Jay, try and find this, uh, this ESPN doc called Catching Hell, because not only does it cover the, this weird uh, instance in Cubs history, but it it, cap, it, it talks a lot about, um, you know, just how we need to find a scapegoat when something goes wrong, and uh, the, the curses, and how that sort of played into our culture in, in a lot of interesting ways. It's not just about baseball, right. in the same way that Moneyball wasn't just about baseball either. So, it's a great, great documentary. But yeah, okay, that's it for me. Yeah. Uh, Jay, you want to go? Okay. Um, <clears throat> mine are I actually give me shelter is on my list as well. Great. Um, and you know my list is kind of just it, it's way too hard to pick just three. Um, there there are so many films to, to choose from, and I didn't include an Errol Morris film on. On here, just because we were going to be talking about him, right? But um, "Gimme Shelter" is definitely um, a, a kind of a, the film that I always bring up when people ask why I like documentaries, and I think just the way that that film changes uh, from one thing to another thing on screen, and yeah. and watching both the Stones and the camera crew deal with it is fascinating um so i've always kind of mentioned the scene where they're performing on stage and stuff is you know getting things are getting worse and worse in the crowd and there's a shot of 
<clears throat> from offstage of Mick Jagger in the foreground and uh, a Hell's Angel bodyguard in the background just staring at him, like giving him this insane death stare. And the the that moment where the, the camera operator is now not even focusing on the Rolling Stones <laughs> is like yeah. a a major shift in, in the storytelling of that film. So it's definitely a, a landmark, uh, both, I guess, uh, documentary and, and rockumentary. Um, I would also include, uh, Frederick Wiseman's Titicate Follies, hmm. which is, uh, just an insane, um, like usually his films are very, um, uh, objective and, and just kind of uh, fly on the wall, uh, capturing how things run at these institutions, like at a, a high school. Um, you know, he just films the, the daily ongoings at a high school or uh, at a zoo or whatever. And, and in this one, it's a mental institution. And the film is is so creepy and provocative and and oddly stylish like he's he's not really a stylish i wouldn't call him a stylish filmmaker but he's just surrounded by so much strange material in this scenario that his film ends it ends up feeling like a david lynch film Hmm. um and it's you know in in black and white and it's just there are moments in it that are just gruesome and and depressing and there are some funny moments, but overall, it's a pretty stark film um, and definitely worth checking out. And the third one would be American Movie, which is the, I think, the easy pick, but it's it's <laughs> yeah. definitely worth all of the praise. I mean, in my mind, American Movie is an untouchable film. It's um, 100% perfect. Um, and obviously, this was a big influence on me for beauty day right um, yeah so i i watch i i watch that film and i still find it hilarious and i still find it completely inspiring like anytime i would have sort of i'd be down on you know trying to uh get the whole film thing going i would watch american movie and and uh be totally inspired yeah that's that's my uh number three that's um it's a it's so, I uh, I I just I every time I watch it, it's just it's sort of almost a litmus test for how I'm feeling because I either find it depressing or uplifting, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and the fact that it is so many things at once and it's and it's able to I think Mark Mark Bor- uh, Borsch how do you pronounce his last Borchard? name Borchard no Borchard yeah. Borchard okay. there you go I think he's such a fascinating character and it really digs into him and it captures these l- little you know, these great moments, um, that, you know, all the kids, uh, quoting apocalypse now, like that's, that, that's <laughs> like, it's, it, it's like five seconds and it tells you like what kind of parent he is, you know, yeah. <laughs> where he, he, he's, he approaches parenting more like a friendship than anything. I mean, um, um, and just, you know, the, the music, uh, by, by Mike Schmidt is, you know, it's just fits so well. Everything about that's really great. Um, uh, my number two would be uh, Crumb, which I think is another sort of easy go-to. It's another uh, one of my favorites, yeah. Because um, I just, 
like I think I just think I think Robert Crumb is such a fascinating person and artist and I think and then like as you go and each of his siblings is even more fucked up than he is and <laughs> sort of uh, sort of the it's it's one of those films where you can't believe that he is saying and doing like the things he is saying and doing in knowing like to a camera you know it's yeah uh, I really love it. I'm actually not even a really a fan of any Terry's uh, Zigoff's, um, uh, you know, fictional films. I don't really like Ghost World all that much, but I this it's definitely one of my favorite movies. I watch it all the time, um, and I like how it, it it melds his art and who he is um, so effortless effortlessly. Um, and then my number one film, which is by no means the greatest. Uh, documentary, but something about it I find hypnotizing is Mondo Kane, um, which is sort of often credited as the first shockumentary. Um, <laughs> it's an Italian film that's pretty much just like a collection of, hey, look at this fucked up shit, and when we can't find fucked up shit, let's just find slightly strange stuff, and when we can't even find that, let's just like stage goofy, you know, little sequences that are like half-written comedy sketches, almost. It's like watching a series of YouTube videos. Almost, but it's <laughs> but the way it's edited together just yeah, no, I find it hypnotizing. That, that's what makes and, it yeah, and I love special. how the narrator is just blatantly not to be trusted. <laughs> like, <laughs> like he, it's so obvious that he's just misrepresenting what's going on screen uh, that it, it just adds this whole other layer where you're second guessing everything you're looking at, and it's a very surreal experience to watch that. Movie. Right, and it's. You know, it's very you know stream of consciousness, but it's done in such an unpretentious way that I, I just find it sort of hypnotic. Uh, I watched that a lot. That's probably I think that was part of, that was in my top ten. Yeah, it might have been. Yeah, that was like all time favorite movies. Have you seen Africa Adio? No, I haven't. I, I would watch that. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's um, I mean it's similar, but it's just on such a, uh, epic scale, like it's shot in, uh, cinemascope and just beautiful cinematography, but some of the most gruesome, uh, scenes and just things that are unbelievable and moments that are clearly staged, but then other moments that don't seem to be staged. Um, there was controversy surrounding it because, uh, at one point there's a man who's shot, by a security officer and the filmmakers were accused of paying the security officer to kill him on oh, camera Jesus. and um, just crazy stuff in that film. And it, just some uh, beyond the, the, the kind of horrific stuff, just some amazing visuals. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think that's, that's sort of something that's interesting about that era of Italian cinema that even in the stuff that didn't proclaim to be documentary, they would, you know, splice in footage of real animals being killed and stuff. They would, they would often, you know, they would mix, uh, you know, the real and the fake in the way that, you know, stuff like, you know, people like Werner Herzog would also do. and, mm-hmm. But for not for artistic effect, just for <laughs> shock value. Right. Um, and as a fan of horror and exploitation films, I really like that. Um, and yeah, then I, totally I want to see that. And then uh, they have another film. This might be the same. But there's a film they have. Uh, um, Goodbye, Uncle Tom. Um, mm. Which is like purported like. Apparently, it takes place where it's like a French or a, it's the Italian film crew, and then they go back in time to the days of slavery, and it's this huge 
epic and like grossly offensive uh quote unquote uh you know real life portrayal of how those days were and it and then it it sort of ends in a weird revolution that edits together i read this huge article about it and i've been obsessed with it but i haven't i've been unable to find like a an unedited copy um i have that film but i haven't watched it yet but hmm. it seems those guys are it's like they're on the verge of being <clears throat> great filmmakers, but they cannot resist the urge to just uh, inject sleaze into right. their movies. <laughs> exactly. And that's, it's kind of uh, partly why I like them. But I definitely check out Africa Adio. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I definitely will. Yeah, I, I really quickly, like, I, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up. Um, Mondo Kane because like I never really perceive certain types of films as being you know like uh, the sort of conventional documentary types because I always respond to the, the documentaries that are like oh this is about this topic or this about this person and just having like a, you know a film like that that sort of you know breaks all the rules and the boundaries of that sort of style is really interesting to me but on the flip side of that you know, I just like watching movies about obsessives. And another film that I, I discovered through Jay was Vinyl, which we brought up yes, on the show you, before. You had, yeah, and you lent me your copy of that. That's, yeah. that, was, that was very I, interesting. I, yeah, I really like watching, uh, you know, documentations of people really obsessing over something and how they become, you know, OCD over certain things. And, you know, just watching people be really passionate about a subject you know, it's 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 really infectious. It's like, oh, you know, I mean, that obviously I respond to that on a personal level, but it's also just interesting to watch, in my opinion. That, that movie's so fascinating in the way it's it just feel like he literally shoots into a mirror in yeah. order to. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, just like I don't seeing know, him hold the camcorder. I don't, I don't know if he wasn't confident that like he couldn't aim the camera at a couch and then just edit out the part where he's walking there, but right, like it, it's it's really it feels very uh direct and it you know and it, it feels very intense um intensely kind of personal due to that sort of super lo-fi uh where did you find that uh jay uh he's actually a filmmaker that um works works with the production company that i'm with um oh. primitive entertainment oh that's Are great you- Sorry, my my screensaver went on, and I wasn't sure if my audio. Cut <laughs> no, 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 out. Oh, no, we can okay. still hear you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's done. Uh, he did uh, three films that he calls the Mirror Trilogy. Um, <laughs> his name's Alan Zweig for people who don't know. And um, the vinyl was not produced by Primitive Entertainment, but the other ones are. And and vinyl is definitely, I think, his best film. And I think it's a good uh, double bill with Crumb. Oh yeah, yeah for sure, definitely. I see that in his one of his other movies actually did play at the uh, Chicago International Film Festival and won an award. It's called I Curmudgeon. So and that's yeah. another one of his mirror films. And Harvey Picar is in that film. Hmm. Interesting, right? Let's try check that track that one down. No, that was a good one. Um, yeah. Do you consider concert films to be documentaries? Uh, 
we had this conversation on our DVD sorting episode, <laughs> trying to figure out where to put concert films. Uh, and we touched on it lightly, but I, um, I don't know. I, I mean, it would have to be something that uh, is totally just kind of a personal, like I would consider last waltz to be a concert film, but I, I consider it to be a film as well same with stop making sense yeah but on the other hand if it was like um you know a dvd of like a nine inch nails concert or something (laughs) i wouldn't consider it a (laughs) right a a documentary or or anything but i don't know it's a weird i I haven't totally sorted that out myself maybe you should do a follow-up to vinyl with uh with the film junk crew and do a short film of uh you guys sorting through your DVDs. <laughs> yeah, I'm that sure would that. be good. <laughs> and then the, the the character who will not have any uh, French titles on the. <laughs> big... uh, that was yeah. That was, I actually heard that episode and where that was discussed, and that was yeah. very interesting to me. Um, <laughs> yes, definitely interesting. Only people obs- obs- <laughs> uh, you know as obsessed with movies and collecting as us. Would totally get into that yeah. stuff. We actually, I don't, I don't think we have a whole lot of time to discuss. I think we're going to get into sort of the other th- things we're going to talk about documentaries just by discussing uh, probably Errol Morse's work. So, oh yeah, definitely. There are definitely questions in terms of you know s- certain choices that Errol Morris makes uh, that we'll be discussing at length in a few here. Yeah. So. Let's just get into it then, I think. Okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> it's like in a few minutes. All right. That's cool. All right. Let's um, talk about the director of the episode then, Mr. Errol Morris. Errol Morris makes documentaries. Characters so bizarre and strange. He has a beautiful style all his own People talk and stare And you can't help but identify With their obsessions and philosophizing Going down to the gates of heaven Through a fog of war across that thin blue line Let's check in with Mr. Death Might end up on a tabloid Don't you know Morris loves people who are fast, cheap, and out of control I love According to Wikipedia, Errol Morris is an American director. <laughs> Errol, Errol Morris attended the University of Wisconsin-Madison, graduating in 1969 with a B.A. in history. For a brief time, Morris held small jobs, first as a cable television salesman and then as a term paper writer. He was inspired mainly by Alfred Hitchcock's film Psycho, and he decided to take a trip to Plainfield, Wisconsin in 1975. While in Wisconsin, he conducted multiple interviews with Ed Gein, the infamous serial killer. He later made plans with a newly formed friend of his, 
German film director Werner Herzog. Although the Ed Gain documentary was never filmed, Werner Herzog pledged that he would eat the shoe he was wearing if Morris's debut film on this improbable subject of pet cemeteries was completed and shown in a public theater. Then, in 1978, Roger Ebert dubbed Gates of Heaven is one of the best films of the year, which helped launch his career and established Morris as not just a groundbreaking documentary filmmaker, but as a director that would later go down in history as one who treated this genre with a very cinematic approach. I'm raised on a farm. <laughs> we had chickens and pigs and cows and sheep and everything. But down here, I've been lost. Now they're taking them all the way from here up to the... What's that name of that place up above here a little ways? The town. Commences with B. Blue Hill. It's Blue Hill Cemetery. I think the name of it is. Uh, not too far. I guess about maybe 20 miles from here. A little town there, a little place. Now, we're going to talk about Gates of Heaven. We're not sure he's American, but Wikipedia <laughs> says it. So. Of course. It's just trying to make it light. <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Gates of Heaven, uh, I, I'd seen a long time ago, and this was kind of before, you know, I, I, I probably saw it on, on, on VHS, and I uh, at the time I wasn't as astute in, in, in the filmmaking process, and I wasn't as engaged by the documentary genre as I am now. And you know, at the time, I, I found it to be a little impenetrable and just sort of just sort of dry and kind of you know just basically the camera was shooting you know guys having you know conversations, and I didn't really respond to it as strongly as I have now. But it's it's a film that you know explores some interesting ideas you know and just by capturing how people respond to you know dealing with the affection they feel towards a, a pet, um, you know as, as as well as you know for for the first half we get a little bit of the scheming that kind of occurs when trying to establish a business and dealing with a competitor a little bit there, and I find, I find that a lot of the you know conversations we get to see. Are really interesting in you know the the subjective perception of how they view their their ambitions, their dreams, their their ideas. You know, the, at one point, the guy starting trying to start the pet cemetery says the only thing the town can prosecute me for is compassion, <laughs> and I find those little moments to be you know really um, really effective. I mean, I, I it, it, he ha- Morris has this interesting affinity for exploring how each individual has their own interpretation like what i what i mentioned and you know how compassion can sort of bleed over into obsession and you know getting a dream off the ground that sort of you know that sort of plays into this movie but it's also just a really interesting portrayal of regular you know midwestern americana life and you know how people build a community around something I um, Jay mentioned uh, the reason one of the reasons he loved Give Me Shelter is it's sort of this sort of personifies every like what he loves about documentaries about how it can turn from one thing to another. Um, now I first saw this film six hours ago, about so uh, I'm still chewing it, and it's definitely uh, it's definitely a film with no narrative, and it's a film you sort of you know meditate on, and 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 I think one of 
Morris's best features is he usually asks the audience to draw their own conclusions. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's always so much more satisfying than, you know, being told, uh, this is what I think, you know, or being preached to. This is a movie I could not get a grip on for like the first 30 minutes because I was pretty convinced that it would. I mean, I, I knew Ebert called it one of the best movies ever, but I thought it would be more like almost like Trekkies. But instead of Star Trek fans, <laughs> it would be like crazy pet lovers. And um, but there's really it's a really hard to pin down movie. There's so many great details and moments and characters and the way that these characters are fully formed. Uh, like the, I, I, I mean, it's 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 incredible to me. The uh, the rend the guy who owns the rendering plant, he he's practically <laughs> cackling and, and yeah, you know, and rubbing his hands together. He he like he loves that people make him a villain for doing this thing that is you know just a normal process that is you know. I can't believe um, people cry over their pets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, and I actually you know when you you think of. Uh, directors that would influence someone like like uh, Wes Anderson. I would have never thought, you know, a documentary filmmaker. But one of the first things I thought of was um, the way in you know Wes Anderson's films, like the opening shot of a person just sitting on a couch, the way they're framed and the way their environment is, it yeah. tells you everything about them. Moore spends so much, like he pays so much attention to. I don't know if it's just the way it was lit or just a happy accident, but. The environments these people are interviewed in are so detailed and um, and say so much about them. And I mean, unlike you know, a lot of documentaries, they'll shoot interviews with a close-up shoulder up, and he really just sort of shows them in their natural environment. And it and it creates this sort of interesting stillness, which uh, is aided by the fact that there's no real uh, music of any kind until the very end. Yeah. Well, I think the one of the more more interesting questions to pose to um to bo- to both of you guys it really is do you feel that it is just simply a portrayal of like idiosyncratic behavior oh no not a, not even close okay because some, some people seem to feel that way like you know is is it just on the surface we're just watching you know people you know have these conversations and these interactions and we're sort of just viewing it as is or is there something underneath because I've, I've, like the first time I saw it, like I said, I wasn't as engaged, and this this time around, I was sensing a lot more. Um, you know, I've, I've seen it three times now, and the second and third time, I, I sense a lot more. You know, subtext or whatever you want to call it, just sort of how there's, uh, you know, people have this need for companionship and, and closure, and all these things are sort of going on. Not just you know, let's just shoot this scene and you know let things play out because um, I think there's more to it than that. Uh, I I don't I, I want to give Jay a chance to talk, but I do want to say really quickly. I think the main thrust of the movie, uh, in terms of its themes, and again, it's a movie that draws that allows you to draw conclusions. So right. it's a kind of movie where you know ninety people can look into it and see ninety different things, but is the key moment and probably the best moment of the film in which uh, an almost it's an almost context-free clip of of, a, of an old woman in a chair. Um, and she goes in this insane, 
it, it, it's it's almost like William Faulkner like type monologue about her son uh, or no or it's who's actually her grandson and about she raised him right and he just doesn't and then there's a few pauses where you can sort of tell uh, she's and then but Errol Morris just lets her keep going and in like this five minute period of time where and this and it, at the very end of it you're revealed oh she is one of the people whose pets is being transferred from the old pet cemetery to the new pet cemetery yeah but it it connects those things cuz it's about it's about wanting to find a place and be loved and the places you make for yourself and the people you fill your life with and stuff and and um, she mentions that she feels really detached from her her son was it her yeah it's her, i think i believe it's her grandson her grandson yeah but she also misses the cats that used to come around here you know, and I, I, that's, that's, yeah, you, you read into it, right? That's, and, and, it's that's just, and it's just right in the end, it complete, and then the movie's very much, uh, it's very much just divided into two parts. Yeah. Um, and it comes right in the middle, and I think it really, at least for me, it clinches everything that, uh, or at least a lot of what the movie is about. And that whole scene to... is sort of a beautiful summation. And yeah. even just the moments where, like, oh, you know, another director might have just cut out the, uh, the car and you know screeching in the background and her going oh was that a car huh that was weird and it's just like going right back into the conversation i'm, I'm really jay <laughs> sorry sorry we get really excited that's okay <laughs> okay um that that's actually my favorite scene in the film and yeah the the screeching car is one of the best moments there's there it's not just the screeching car but she stops and says oh was that a car and then she's continues to talk and then there's a honk on mm-hmm. top of her talking that's almost like a, a period at the end of one of her sentences and the timing of it is just like I don't know if they added the honk for comedic effect, comedic effect or what but but I mean I think he, he Errol Morris is obviously an obsessive person um, if you look at his New York Times essays and you know his Twitter feed and for anyone who's seen him interviewed or or you know speaking at q a's or whatever he's he's obviously just as obsessive as some of the people in his films and i think that the pet cemetery thing is almost just an excuse it's like a bonus like he it almost feels like that's not important like he just wants an excuse to talk to people who are as obsessive as he is and as passionate as he is and people he's just genuinely intrigued by and i think that because his his film that followed this uh vernon florida was originally going to be called nub city and it was it was him going to vernon florida because there was some insurance scam where people were cutting off limbs to to get fraudulent like insurance claims and he ended up ditching the whole insurance limb story and just focused on talking to these people and it's almost like he said you know i i don't need the the plot <laughs> I'll, I'll just have these people talking about life um for the the 60 minutes um and that's kind of what i like about it. i i you were saying about the his environments that he shoots in this is where i actually prefer his earlier work um, and you know, I, I do love his his recent films as well. But he once he introduced the Interatron and started putting people in rooms with uh, you know designer backdrops, it it made me kind of um, 
you know, think back fondly to films like Gates of Heaven, where he shot people in their environment and there was the, the backgrounds added character to them. And, and, you know, for example, the, the one son with the trophy room. Yeah, he, oh, he's almost um, he's enveloped in them, like he's he's peeking mm-hmm. out from behind them. <laughs> yeah, which I I saw a documentary on documentaries, and uh, they talk about that scene. And apparently, Errol Morris actually had him bring his his trophies were actually in the attic, and he had them bring them down and hang them up. Right, which is very controversial. Yes, um, and for sure. But I mean, it 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 says it's not. I don't think it's false, you know. It, it, I mean, the, it's, the, no, I'm sorry. It, go ahead. Well, I just think it it says it says what you what he uh, uh, wants to say about this guy in a visual, and it's not you know the guy in that scene is talking about how he would load his trophies up in his office um, when he would bring clients in or whatever, right? Uh, people for job interviews. So it's not completely um, untrue. Yeah. Yeah. Just in that scenario, those trophies didn't happen to be hanging up in that room at that moment. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's and I think, um, you know, I think that's sort of what makes this movie so fascinating is in its brief running time, um, you know, talking to all of these people, it paints such incredibly vivid pictures without like it stylistically. It's I'm not I'm not I'm not saying it's plain because it's a really beautiful movie for, you know because they're in their environment but yeah i mean even the inserts he shoots of like the uh the the photos of the dog that the couple are mourning they're shot on grass they're not like mm-hmm. you know they're not just uh scanned in or whatever um with the scan in equivalent of back in 1978 was but um i think i think it's just uh you get such you know vivid portraits of people and and um and so many people and that it, it's almost I, like it. I think you're, what you said is sort of exactly right. Where it, it's sort of the uh, the idea of a pet cemetery and exploring that is almost it's it's almost just an excuse. Um, and you're absolutely right there. Um, and he does do some interesting, like talking about the cutaways. One that really stands out to me is when the in the first half hour of the film, when the the man talking about. Um, starting his pet cemetery says he uh, was puts heart um, heart over money. Is that the yeah heart yeah. over the dollar? And then it shows him drawing the heart with the, which is an interesting, um, you know, a, an interesting visual because it's it seems out of place, but it it does its job. I mean, it it I remember it. You know, it's it <laughs> it punctuates that that thought um, interestingly. Um. But I mean, he he just, you know, he has a way of choosing characters and subjects where, you know, he just lets them talk. And and like the the younger son, uh, as in the middle of all of this talk about the pet cemetery business, he's cutting keeps cutting back to this younger son who just is talking about recording music. Yeah. And, you know, it's not related at all to it's literally being dropped in the middle of these discussions about the pet cemetery. That's and it's it's interesting because it's like, okay, this guy is clearly not interested. These this younger <laughs> son is clearly not interested in the pet cemetery. His true passion is music. And then that against the older son who is 
almost emasculated by having to to you know work under his younger brother uh, uh, and you know memorize the locations of the the veterinary clinics and all the problems he's had with uh, getting used to working at the the pet cemetery. The, so, the family dynamic is is amazing. Uh, what I love about that whole second half of the film is how it starts off with all three of them giving the details of mm-hmm. what their pet cemetery is like and what they want it to be and how it came to be. But then as as the second half goes towards the end, they're all splitting in different directions where the father is really you know convinced he wants to do something good and he he's really concerned about the integrity uh, he wants it to be the best. He wants it to always be around, you know? Right. He talks about it's going to be around 100 years from now, which is like it's, – it's kind of ridiculous to even think about um, just that kind of confidence. And then you have the, the – you know, the oldest brother who is like he, – he like, he's like a he's, – he's like such a great, perfect encapsulation of the 70s where he's taking this sort of groovy 60s new age talk, but he's applying it to business. <laughs> Uh, you know, and he, he's talking about the power of thought and brain, but it's all towards, you know, trying to, you know, trying to be, be the best you can. But it, at this, in this situation, it's the best salesman, you know, and it's clear he does not care what he sells. He talks, you know, life insurance, pet cemeteries, all interchangeable. He, uh, he'd, he'd be a great author for a self-help and this, book. Yeah. And this <laughs> sort of, and the defeated, you know, younger brother and, and then how it just sort of really amazingly like consistently just they just all slide away from each other and they i believe even the way that their uh, talking intercuts begins to go quicker and you just start to see all the differences and then i i almost my biggest complaint about the film is i think that the first half is not nearly as interesting as the second half um i i i think the first half is definitely a little slower yeah um i mean the first half is it's interesting in in the um, you know the idea of this guy trying to do good and you know his uh, my favorite part of the first half is the rendering factory right. guy I yeah. mean because he's constantly just sort of undercutting the romanticizing of the the pet and the right. death of the pet and bringing it back to reality almost you know like when he talks about going you know going to dinners and how he's almost proud in a weird way that people do not want him to talk about what he does at the <laughs> dinner table because they will get sick. Right. They can't um, handle what he does. Yeah. Um, no, there's, I, I think there's definitely uh, like definitely parts of brilliance. I think the, sort of the nitty gritty story about um, how they wanted to build the pet cemetery and then how they lost money. I don't think that's nearly, a, I don't think that's very interesting. Um I, I I do like that it kept cutting back from sort of the technical details of starting a business like this yeah. to this uh, you know paraplegic who is just just obsessed with the idea of uh, of just providing a place for people to have closure and like just like he he believes that this is you know God's touch God has pointed at him and said I need you to do this to my people you know. Um, and I like the cutting between those two things, but I just I think the second half is just so much more intriguing and stronger. Um, now, sort of the thing that I think uh, gets talked about a lot, um, and so we're definitely going to be talking about later about Errol Morris, is the idea of what is his attitude towards his subjects. Um, you know, there are 
you know, uh, I, Ebert wrote up a great, you know, a great movies uh, article, and he, he said he always likes to show this movie at um, at uh, lectures because whenever it ends, everyone is arguing because <laughs> they all have different interpretations. Um, do you think? Uh, what do you do? You think uh, it, he's mocking the people in the film, or do you think it's it's like it's a mixture? Or what do you think? I don't think he's mocking the people. Um, I, I think that, I mean, there are clearly some moments that are played for humor. Like one, one of the funniest moments in the film is, um, when the, t- the couple sitting in front of the hay wheat field are, are <laughs> talking, the, the woman's talking about getting the uh, you know, it's best if you take your pets and uh, she's long-windedly saying getting them neutered, and the guy's just like neutered, and then it cuts on that word. Yeah, immediately kills cuts. me. That that yeah. moment kills me. Yeah. Um. So I, you know, I don't see anything wrong with that. You know, deriving humor from moments like that, but I, I, I don't think he is mocking anyone, and I, I think that, um, you know, I've, I've heard him say something like this before that the assumption by an audience member that you know there these people are being mocked in the film is more of a uh says more about their perception of the people in the movie than it does about the filmmaker's perception um that you know if if I, I, this came up again with his latest film tabloid um, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of laughs in tabloid um, and even the subject, I guess, was put off by how much people were laughing. But it's not at anything other than just how she talks, you know? Like, he just picked a person that is funny. And I, I don't think that he's doing it... He's doing it on purpose. Like, he's he's probably... He recognizes a, the humor. Right. But I don't think he's doing it to mock them. Uh, I think he seems to like the idea of allowing... Um, people who aren't scholars or academics pontificate about life and the meaning of life. And that immediately to an audience is taken as mocking. But in reality, I think some of the stuff that, that these people say in these films is quite sincere and genuine and, and uh, interesting. Yeah. I, Um, I don't, I don't think he would have included that montage of the headstones. Um, you know, I think that is just, that's not a, I don't think that's a really humorous moment. I, I, I think it's sort of a moment where I think there are parts of it, especially again, Oh God, just the little characters that are sketched out with the, the two bickering old women about, <laughs> about the one woman wanted to pretend that uh, she just wanted to, she just wanted to be center of attention and pretend she didn't want her pet moved. And yeah. Um, you know, like. There's obviously it, it just comes down to the fact that people are funny. Yeah. Like, funny in that this the sense of like they're just funny. <laughs> like Yeah. There's nothing you know I don't think there's anything wrong with finding humor in in a lady taking petty pot shots at a woman for not liking her pets as much as she likes her pets. Um it's just people are funny like that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean it's a, it's a question I had more with um some of his other films. I don't think I had it with this film. And I think I think a lot of what helps is uh is just I mean I think a lot of it is he just refuses to tell you how to feel. Um 
and I and I don't think it's edited. I think it could have been edited a lot differently for comedy. I think a lot of people are used to, to that. If they just wanted Maxim, and yeah, you know, and that's true. Um, but I think he's really interested in sort of the mystery of these individuals. Like, why are they? Why do they feel the way they feel? And you know, why are they obsessed with this one particular aspect of their lives? Like, uh, another filmmaker would might think. You know, let's cut out all the stuff with the younger, you know, brother and, you know, talking about music because it doesn't pertain to the overall, you know, pet cemetery and, you know, what he was striving for, you know, with just showcasing their business and everything. But to me, it's just, I think Errol Morris is interested in private obsessions and why people seem to, you know, addictively go for these things and how it reflects their behavior and how it influences them. And it. And even on another level, and I think this is probably even more true of our next film we're going to be talking about, but I, and it, it, I almost feel unqualified to talk about the film because I feel like it's just something that – because my mind started wandering way beyond the subject matter that was on screen, you know, when mm-hmm. that great triumphant moment – I mean, you finally – you hear you hear the song, he rec- uh, you hear him playing guitar on the hammock. And then you, which is just him sort of noodling around on an acoustic guitar, and then you hear a song he recorded on like a four-track tape. Uh, recorder, and then there's that amazing triumphant moment towards the end, where he's just standing over the graveyard, blasting into <laughs> this canyon. His you know guitar riffs, uh, it's sort, just sort of, of narr- shouting narr- to the yeah. heavens. It narratively just, builds to that, right? absolutely, and it's and it's just it's a great. conscious choice. And again, it's 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 a short film with a lot of characters. That character probably isn't on screen for more than ten minutes, but you get such an amazing arc out of him. And I think that's the most astonishing thing about the film is how complete the port. And if and if it was done by you know setting up the environment so they'd be a little more symmetrical and mm-hmm. you know when the paramedic you know when the not paramedic when the paraplegic is you know let's make sure the the scales are behind him like the scales of justice and when when the uh, you know when the older brother is talking make sure among all of his awards and accolades and trophies there's a tiny little framed picture of two dogs. Yeah, like just sort of lost. I mean, if even if Morris did that, you know, he he decorated the set, so to speak. I, it's it doesn't change the fact that you know it it, it improved the movie and it made the movie. And it's a reflection of the personality of the characters, or right? The, I mean, it's not, it's not invented too. wholesale. I mean, if this right. movie, if Errol Morris came out tomorrow and said the movie was completely fiction, all of everyone was actors, it would still be very powerful. You know? Oh, of course. It would be the because number one, it would be the, the most realistic mockumentary ever made. <laughs> well, there's an interesting thing with um, his film, A Brief History of Time, where he, from what I understand, all of the interview subjects that are in these offices and rooms and just that look extremely cinematic, nicely lit, um, apparently all of those interviews were done on sound stages where they made offices right. like, to look like either, I don't know if they're necessarily <laughs> supposed to look like their offices or just offices in general. I assume they were and, like real lived in environments. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I remember having a conversation about that with someone at one point about, you know, they were really put off by that and thought that that was uh, some sort of deception and, but for me, it was like, well, what's the difference between putting a, a an office background, essentially, behind someone having complete control over the lighting and making it look really nice versus putting a marbled uh, print 
uh, canvas backdrop behind someone. I mean, they're both just you're you're interested in what they have to say. Like right. it's just talking heads, you know. It's people sitting down in front of a camera, being asked to talk about something that they would not be talking about at that moment in time, and whether or not the office behind them is theirs really i don't think has any impact on anything like it, it'd be like if you showed up at a, a a building to interview a scientist and you walked into their office and it was like you know there's giant windows and you're it's going to be blown out and it's gonna we're gonna have problems with audio and can we just shoot it in your neighbor's office is that a no-no you know yeah like, well i think that brings up an interesting point with preconceived notions with walking into a documentary film is that people expect you know everything to be real real and truthful and nothing there are no manipulative elements to I, but, it and i i mean uh, which is which is ludicrous i think um and i i mean just cuz editing makes it subjective the only right. way a documentary could be objective is if you gave them all of the footage in the order you shot it you know mm-hmm. and all of the archival material and that was your movie it was just a completely uncut but um, I think Morris, I think he gets away with it, certainly, you know, in Gates of Heaven, because it, it doesn't look slick, you know? It looks real. And I think, and I, those offices, you know, they, they look lived in. Um, I think there is a moment in, like, Mr. Death where uh, he's working on the machine and he's, like, pulling the switch. I think that looked a little too staged and that took me out of it. Sure. But I think when, but- if, as long as you believe it, uh, you know, as long as it doesn't look too slick, then it, I think it works. But at the same time, you can just admire how cool it looks, and even if it is staged, I think. Like, that's the thing about Mr. Death that really appealed to me is some of the cinematography or just a lot of the the choices he made cinematically, I thought, was interesting because it's it's, a, it's kind of a contrast from his earlier work, and especially once we get into the next one. Right. Film, well, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, I was actually looking through Errol Morris's Twitter feed today and he was having an argument with someone over this i believe uh and i i they were talking about some photographer who photographer who took pictures of the west and like how he he would bring bleached cow skulls and put them there and uh morris was saying like i I don't have the exact quote but morris was basically saying if he put the bleached cow skull in the desert does that mean that no cows ever died in the desert and that became skeletons like you know, and that's and that's basically what you're saying, Jay. Where it's just like it's still true. It's just not that inst. You know, right? Yeah, it's still representing something that is true. It's just getting to it a different way. And well, I you just, always hear you hear Werner Herzog talk about the ex, uh, ecstatic truth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's like you know the take Tree of Life. Tree of Life. Uh, I don't know if you guys like Tree of Life or not, but I very much yes. <laughs> right, and I'm sure you can take uh, something from that film that maybe has informed you about the human condition or something about yourself or or whatever. And you know, it, it's not a true story; it's a, a fictional story, but it, it still has the the ability to enlighten you in that way, like in a very real way, right? Um, and I think that sometimes documentary filmmakers just use little techniques to get you to that point 
a little easier um, or to give you information about someone a little easier without having to or more cinematically like it it's very easy to forget that these are films like these are are they should be cinematic especially especially nowadays i feel like there's a lot of films that are basically just like essays shot for like where it's just all talking heads and graphics and there's nothing essentially cinematic about it right that's and i mean if 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 fiction can use uh metaphors and and everything and uh visual like you know tree of life can play these visuals of the universe and juxtapose it with you know the 1950s family and and get you to a a place in your head um using those tools why can't documentaries do that if you know in ways that don't completely undermine whatever bit of truth is there is in in the story i mean mr death you talk about him walking up to the machine and it's seeming staged well the opening of that film is like him sitting in this cage or something and like electricity going off all around him and it's like he's setting it up as this sort of grand cinematic sort of character and i i think that you know it's i i just think it it's fair for for non-fiction filmmakers to use some of the same tools that fiction filmmakers use i i i feel like and then i think there was a lot of conversation mostly around when catfish came out about whether it's real and i think a lot of people and this also happened with i'm still here like they're afraid of someone getting one over on them (laughs) so like a scene where he's in the cage and there's electricity shooting out everywhere they're they don't they're not they're not worried but they're afraid oh morris errol morris is trying to trick me um or trying to put him or trying to put this character on a pedestal yeah he's he's trying to he's you know he's trying and people don't like to feel fooled um i but yeah i think Though I, I I think that does raise an interesting question. Do does the filmmaker have any obligation to truth? Like, what is the line that, or does, is the filmmaker's only obligation to make the best possible film? Well, I heard recently on a podcast that Michael Moore stated that he's not interested in documenting the absolute one hundred percent honest truth. His main priority is to make a movie. Well, I mean, he does film. He I always picture doc- not not roger and me so much but you know like fahrenheit 9 9 uh, 11 and so, those always seem like more like cinema essays yeah than, uh, documenting anything there there are, there are some some of his tactics i don't necessarily enjoy in when i'm watching a documentary like even just him narrating wonder what george bush well, was no, thinking i mean well that's just like i don't like a smug sense of humor right yeah it's not, not anything inherently wrong but like um do you think there are any lines, Jay, in which you know a documentary filmmaker should not be able to cross? Uh, I, I don't think it's something that can be decided generally. Like I, I think it's mm-hmm. a case by case basis. Like if you're someone like Michael Moore, who's coming out and throwing people on screen and accusing them of doing this and doing that and um, trying to enlighten. Uh, the American people about all of these injustices and things that they're not aware of that I think that's a different responsibility, but um, you know, something like catfish, like I I had issues with catfish at the beginning as well. And it wasn't so much that it was that I was concerned that there were things that were, were fake or staged it was what that meant to the person in the movie, like the, yeah. at the end of the film. And um, 
you know, I kind of got over that eventually, but I, I think that, um, it, it's just, it has to be, it, it's all in the, the tone of the film. Like it's almost like with fiction where you have to earn, um, you have to earn certain things like, a, a for a, a really heavy moment for a character at the end of a film, if, if you're intending for it to be, uh, of a, a certain level of impact to the audience, you have to build to that. Like you can't have a, a, a comedy like, you know, happy Gilmore end with, um, him being lynched or something <laughs> or, like it's, it's a tonal thing. Right. And yeah. I, I think whatever is appropriate for the, the story and the way it's being told in that particular case, um, and then from there, it's up to the judgment of the filmmaker, and it'll ultimately be on their, uh, you know, heads whether or not they, audiences or critics feel like they were misrepresenting their subject matter or their their characters, or you know, I, I think a movie like American Movie would have more leeway in in playing with the truth than Inside Job. Um, and I think that's okay. Like they're, they're two different films that are doing two different things. So it's a very uh, case by case sort of thing, I think. Right. I mean, with catfish, I remember, and I haven't rewatched it since I saw in the theater, but just having that sort of like, uh, objectionable moment when, you know, they, they ask her, can you, you know, do that? Can you act in the voice? that you used on the phone to the camera. And to me, that was, uh, that made me feel like they were being manipulative in that, in that way. And, and not in a way that I felt, puni- you felt, you felt like they were almost punishing her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it made me feel uneasy. Whereas like just capturing other moments didn't so much. Like that's where I felt really conscious of what the filmmakers were trying to do. And that sort of takes me out of, being immersed into a movie is when I'm conscious of, oh, this filmmaker just decided to make this choice right now in this moment. And to me, that I, I, I tend to find that off-putting. I mean, I guess it sort of depends on the context because I also realize that not everybody is William Hurt from broadcast news and, like, actively trying to manipulate a scene to, you know, make them look good or to sell the story, per se, you know. And and that's See, a, that's that's sort of like a, a breach of ethics in that case because he has a you know a journalistic integrity to uphold. I, I think the my conclusion with Catfish and like a scene like that was the problem. The reason it it, it was problematic is because the film is is the filmmakers are the people in the movie. Like if yeah. if that was being filmed by someone who was not connected to anything that was happening. And they were just documenting as, as you know a, an observer what was mm-hmm. going on. Then you wouldn't be criticizing the film for that moment. You would be criticizing Neve or whatever his name was right. for that moment. It would just be like that guy is a dick. But then it's like okay, well if you look at it in, in, from that perspective, the filmmakers are in the film, so they are they are a part of this story as well. So they can be perceived as dicks too (laughs) even though even though they're the filmmakers in a way that scene is almost about their misjudgment of or mishandling of that moment as well Uh, and yeah you know what i mean like it's 
so it's almost like even though they're in control of the 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 edit and what's being shot they're and they're documenting themselves as well there are judgments being made on them that within the film that i don't think they're intending and i think that's fair like i i think the film almost exists as like something that uh you know you can you can look at that scene as um three young guys in over their heads who aren't mature enough to properly deal with that situation and right. you know that's, that's a great way the, to look at it. the reality of it um you know it's very easy to say if i was in that situation and i was a filmmaker i would shut the camera off and leave and it's like well I, I don't totally buy that. Like some people might, but um, you know, it, it's a, it's a very, I don't know. I, I had problems with that as well, but it, the more I think about it, I think the less of a problem it is with the, the film itself than just the actions of the people who are in it, which mm. I think is a, a fair judgment, like a fair um, uh, question to be raised by the movie, I guess. Even it's not if it's not intended. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm kind of grateful that that you know question even came up in just watching the film. Like, oh, you know, that's just another element to sort of ponder over. Like, well, was that necessary? Could they have just cut that out, or was I all of a sudden empathizing with her? You know, there's a lot of things that just from like one moment or one key scene, and you know, going back to Gates of Heaven, like there are moments where I'm like, wow, I can't believe something. You know, something simple. You know. And something so poignant and, and profound can come out of these people who had such a, a strong connection to, you know, to their pets. You know, like just even saying something like, you know, towards the end, that woman saying, there's your dog. Your dog's dead. But where's the thing that made it move? It had to be something, didn't it? I don't know. It's just like little things like that that just make me like, you know, go, ah. <laughs> but also <laughs> just thinking, ah, people are amazing. Like, and that's what I get. The, I, I, that's when I always like when people make this argument that, you know, Errol Morris is, you know, kind of mocking his characters. That he's misanthropic. I, yeah, I don't get that impression. I really don't. Like, I feel like he genuinely, I mean, he's capturing these, you know, eccentric people for a reason. And maybe, like, you know, in a couple other films you can sort of say, well, what's the point of that conversation or that philosophy that this character is, you know, uh, rambling on about? And I definitely have that with Vernon Florida a little bit, for sure. But at the same time, I, I think that he genuinely likes to hear these stories in the same way that, you know, when I listen to This American Life or, you know, like I love hearing stories about these really interesting moments in a person's life. So I, 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 I like think that. he just I think he finds them genuinely um, charming and and um, almost uh, romanticizes like the at the end of Vernon, Florida, mm-hmm. the, the old man in the canoe explaining what God is, is like an amazing moment. And, you know, there's nothing funny about it. There's nothing uh, uh, that I, you know, I don't watch that and I don't judge this guy. You know, I'm, I don't share the same beliefs, but I, I find that scene to be um, very, enlightening and and touching and and i think i'm sure he does as well i i think that he enjoys the earnestness of the people that are talking to him in those in that film and um 
we're living in a time where nothing is earnest anymore. Like everything <laughs> is cynical and ironic and um, self-aware. And, yeah. Like meta and like, it, it's hard to take things that are earnest seriously without, and then, you know, which leads you to, well, he must think that these people are idiots. Right. Yeah. That's I mean, I want to talk point. more about Vernon, Florida uh, later. I think now would be a good time though to, uh, yeah, let's transition into, to um, the second film. Cool. Fast, cheap, and out of control. Mm-hmm. When they come through the door, you've got about three seconds to do what we call read them. Uh, are they coming after you? If you're not scared of them, you're in big trouble. <laughs> I've been told by several people, well, you're old-fashioned. You uh, you want to do everything by hand. This is the only way you can do it and do it right. A friend of mine called me and he said to me, Ray, they found them. And I said, where? And he said, in Africa. It's a thing called the naked mole rat and they have a society just like termites. When I switched the things on, the lights flashed and the machine came to life. It moved. Some people believe that we are going to replace ourselves by building these machines, and that may be. When I first started in the business, I was lucky to get out of the cage in one piece. This is all done from memory. You know what an animal looks like, and so you just start making an animal. If you hold a mole rat, it's best to hold it with your hand flat, and always be aware of where the head is. And if it starts to dig into the palm of your hand, it'll rip it right open. While Gates of Heaven was the work of a burgeoning upstart filmmaker, by 1997, Errol Morris was an institution and a critical darling. Still, no one could have quite predicted something like Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, which took the four stories of four eccentric individuals with bizarre professions and melded them together. And while most people wouldn't see the similarities between a lion tamer, a naked mole rat specialist, a topiary artist, and a robotics expert, Errol uses their lives and thoughts as a jumping-off point for a kaleidoscopic meditation on life and the way we try to control our worlds. Um, this is... Good this summation. Is, <laughs> yeah. This is another film very sort of similar where it's it's almost it's less narrative it's not you know Mr. Death or Thin Blue Line um it is it, it, this one much more aggressively so I'd say even than uh than uh, Gates of Heaven um I think I mean I have uh, it, you know we talk about objectivity and subjectivity and you know here's another subjective problem like it just I, I had a my main problem with this movie it worked really well for me as just sort of a starting point for my mind to wander on different ideas and connections and ideas of robotics and people and insects and you know a relationship man, yeah, with and animals if, and yeah, machines and, and I think it does a good job of like sort of saying you know naked mole rats are this close to insects and if robotics are this close to people you know like yeah. finding of, those correlations is really interesting sort of but I think I I think number one the uh, I think the topiary artist is a really boring character. Um, there are some moments, uh, like some shots, I believe, like there's a slow motion one of him like walking towards a I think the giraffe in the rain. That's great, but yeah, for sure. And I think, but I think my main problem with it is I think this is a really ugly looking movie, and I don't. I think it's the first ugly looking Errol Morris movie I've seen, where I just I hated how it kept. You know, it kept cutting from black and white footage. You know, it would use black and white filters. And I, I sort of, um, on one level, I sort of understand that it was, uh, and it, you know, it sort of melds all of these disparate stories together by 
you know, by, you know, uh, sort of blurring the line between, you know, what is a, you know, a public domain B movie Mm -hmm. and what is a, you know, and what's actually footage he shot and, um, and there's, but, and then he had a, he used a lot of effects I just hate. I've never, ever, ever a fan of the, uh, I don't know the exact term for it, but it's basically when the slow motion has a low frame count. Uh, like Peter Jackson did it a lot in Lord of the Rings, um, where it's just it's sort of like flickery and almost strobe-like. Yeah, uh, I think that's always just really ugly, um, and it looks like it's like a really cheap video effect to me, and I always hate it. Well, this was <laughs> the first time that uh, Robert Richardson, the cinematographer, I believe, joined Errol Morris, and uh, you know he he just come you know working primarily with Oliver Stone, I believe, and he sort of brought some of that flashier style and the interesting cutaways. But I, I, to me, it just it feels cheaper. And I, there's no doubt that this movie... It's in the title. Yeah, well... <laughs> it's out of control, man. Yeah, it's just... I, that, you know, I just think... I mean, and again, that's it, it's very much a subjective, I don't like this aesthetic. You know, I, I can't necessarily find it as a fault within the film. Mm-hmm. I just really hate that aesthetic. Well, there were moments where, like, one individual would be talking and then we'd see something that's completely the opposite of what they're talking about. Like, maybe the, um, the, 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 the robotics expert would be talking, but we're actually seeing images from the circus. And to me, I found that to be... Uh, no, I, I like that. No, that was I, good because that's again that's part of what makes it something good to think about is the way it connects all of these yeah. things that you would think are disparate. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I had no problem with that. I don't know why you had to have quite so many clips from the uh, the old serial with the uh, lion tamer. Um, you know, with the sort of the you know powerful, influential lion tamer that inspired the uh, lion tamer who's interviewed in the film, <laughs> uh, but. I, I, Jay, I imagine you really like this movie, and I would really like to get in a, you know, just sort of what you really uh, enjoy about it. Um, well, I, I wouldn't say it's my favorite of his films, and I actually agree with some of your criticisms. I'm not a big fan of that, like, post-effect slow-motion aesthetic either, mm-hmm. and I'm not, I'm not as big of a fan of his... Um, uh, I mean, he's done this in other films as well. His use of old film clips, um, or shooting the television to get that um, scan line. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. I don't like that. Um, yeah, th- I'm not a big fan of that stuff. But the, I, th- I think a lot of my love of this film just comes from um, the fact that it is so unusual and is is a. Um, is not what you would normally think of as uh, uh, coming from the documentary world. Like it's, yeah. it's such a, 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 a provocative uh, film, even in that regard, like in, in regards to this is a, a, a documentary alongside all of these social and political films. And it looks nothing like any other documentary you've seen. And I'm going to pull in a, a, a cinematographer who's, mainly working in fiction and i'm going to ask him to light these things uh like the shots with the the uh, garden animals and everything are just uh, the overhead light lighting shots like you'd see yeah martin scorsese yeah i mean he he obviously hired robert richardson for a reason 
And, you know, he continued through his career to hire cinematographers that were, you know, known for doing fiction and for a reason, because he wants his films to look interesting and, and he wants to make movies. And, um, and of course, like the biggest thing is the editing in this film. It's, it's watching these four guys being cut together in a way that, um, you know, uh, they have so much fun with with playing uh, scenes of you know the the lion tamers and whatever against uh, a guy talking about uh, trying to control these robots and like and you, you can you can just watch this movie and draw so many um, connections between these four guys. It almost feels like it could be any four people like it, it's yeah, almost like a, he challenged sure. himself to do that yeah like because you know i'm not totally in love with overanalyzing things myself but it, it's almost an interesting experiment in let's just take four people and cut them together and see how it will start to connect and it will you know <laughs> i i don't think that I think there there were choices made here where you know they were obviously going for certain things, but I feel as though you could potentially take any four people and get a result, maybe not as um, perfect as this, but similar. Um, so it's it's interesting in that way, and it's I find it interesting that it's it doesn't really have a narrative. It's just um, guys talking about their their passions and. And uh, their stories work like a choir, like they all have to have their voices in order for the the big picture to, you know, work, Mm -hmm. Um, take one of them out and it'll it'll fall apart. Um, And yes, some of them are more interesting than others, but I think they they help support each other. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's it's like I said, it's it's not my favorite film of his, but it's I, I love it for just it's um what it's trying to do and the the ambition there and and trying to broaden the uh you know what is considered a documentary film right it's very distinctive in that way i i i guess my problem with it it almost feels like you know uh like a william s burroughs kind of experiment where he would you know flip through channels or you know radio stations and sort of the brief pieces of information he would get uh, that accumulated as he switched, you know, flipped through channels every two seconds for, you know, 20 minutes would eventually start to tell its own story. And I feel like rather than a, rather than any kind of proof of how humans are connected or how life, you know, how the way we vision life is connected, it feels almost like proof that this editing style could put any four people See, I feel like it's more proof of style than it is necessarily of uh, a substance. I think everything you're saying is definitely true. It's very unique, and I was never bored. And it's and there was a lot of really fascinating things. And I think what I what I do like about uh, the the uh, the style is he, he sort of teases the viewer because um, mm-hmm. just as you're getting into one thing, you start longing for other things, and then that's. Again, he's all about making you make the jump, and the more you are forced to think about, you know, if it was all, I think, I, I mean, I think, I think, uh, Jim, you agree that the most, your favorite person is the robotics guy. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and like if it was just him, 
you know, it could have been a more straightforward. There'd be no, you know, lulls or whatever. But, but that's sort of what we come to expect from Errol Morris. Well, I mean, I, I, I would say that this is structurally almost similar to Gates of Heaven, though. I mean, it's it's obviously different, but in the way that, you know, he doesn't. He's not going to provide the audience with the narrative. Yeah. Um, and he's and he's sort of encouraging you to make your own conclusions, but. If you spent your entire time watching the robot guy, your mind would never wander. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're seeing you see that brief glimpse of that kangaroo bot, which is probably <laughs> like my favorite, you know, second and a half of the film because <laughs> I had no idea because you know most of the robotics they're seeing are moving kind of clunkily, you know, like insects, and it's all about you know getting motorized segments to work and stuff. And then just for a split second, you see a kangaroo robot that's hopping through the air on its conveyor belt, you know, this sort right. of treadmill thing. And then you're like, whoa, what is that? And then it and then it makes you then it goes back to the roll mats and it's it ev- it evokes things in you that a straightforward narrative, even if it was like even without this style, if he was did a more uh sort of reined in approach to these four people trying to connect them, um, you would have you your mind wouldn't race like that, and I think that's a really interesting effect that he achieves well. Um, oh yeah, I totally agree. I I, th- I think I just like the whimsical nature of everything. Yeah, and you know, I was even thinking at you know, for some reason my mind went into uh, maybe it's because of the the score sort of had obviously like a Philip Glass touch, but with more like Danny Elfman I from the a Tim lot of Burton his, movies. I mean, Philip Glass did the score for Brief History of Time. Did he do any of the other Errol Th- Morris scores? Blue Line. Okay. Yeah, that's a very memorable score for sure. I think he does a lot of um, when he has when he has scores. I don't think there's any real score in Vernon, uh, Florida yeah. either. But when I he just like I just very Philip Glass. I just style. liked how you know the score would sort of mirror each segment very well, very effectively, and even you know like I know you mentioned the gardener, and I too wasn't as compelled by his story. But just you know, even if it's sort of like a, a build up to the realization that he's like, I'm going to be doing this till the day I die, you know, for because I told this woman that I would, and I'm going to, and just something that simple. I think that's what Errol Morris does. I think he finds the beauty and simplicity like that, and just you know, he can find somebody who has a mundane job or, you know, but he's still obsessed with his craft, you know. And I find that really interesting that people can have that drive to be like you know what i this is my boring job and guess what i love it <laughs> yeah you know and and he represents and it, that and visually. of course that boring job is contrasted against lion taming well, yeah. <laughs> which is that's, well, that's what i, I mean. mean that's that's a that's a monty python sketch that's literally a monty python sketch in which a chartered yeah. accountant wants to be a lion tamer and yeah, you know. and in the same way, it's like I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say I learned something about lion taming, but I just obs- uh, enjoyed observing that trait. That was that was the other that was the other thing, and this is obviously not. I mean, this is obviously intentional. Morris doesn't, but I hated all of those lion taming scenes just because. And I'm not even like a like a you know really well, soft hearted animal person. I'm not a person. fan of circuses in general. Yeah, so. I'm not even like a really soft hearted animal person. But all of those scenes, I was just like, oh god, I this person. I, I mean, again, it's not. I don't think Morris is unaware of it. I don't think he is. You know, I don't. And I by I think the way he emphasizes that character sort of well, you gotta you gotta use like psychological torture on them. You gotta yeah. sort of rein them in. Like it's a fucking war against well, these th- animals who are jumping through hoops. If the whole movie had played like a circus, I would have gotten kind of sick of it. 
and I don't think I don't think it did. I mean, that's just and that's just a, a thing that I love about a lot of documentaries is that something I wouldn't I had complete disinterest in. I wouldn't care less about like like how I mentioned to you uh, before we start recording. I watched Buck, and I have no interest in horses. Right, but. I was just so Buck the film about the horse yeah, whisper. Yeah, and I I just was so taken with that world because not only is the character they're focusing on interesting, but the documentary filmmaker themselves just knows how to tell a good story. Maybe it doesn't necessarily have all the trademarks of an arc or something that you come to expect from you know traditional movie. And I just I think I just like obs- the uh, the observing aspect of of documentary filmmaking, and sometimes I can actively say well that doesn't interest me as much but just how he puts it all together and normally i'm not but this film you don't really have a lot of time to observe right it's, it's more I mean, we're it's jumping not, back and forth yeah it's, right? you're being dragged you're it's it's uh and that natural born killer style of editing i don't it doesn't see, appeal to my, me either my but. problem is it just if i don't know if it was a different style and obviously like i said there are things about it that only work because of the style Mm-hmm. But if it was different, I think it would have been a more enjoyable experience for me and something I would want to revisit. As it is, I don't think I'll ever really want to watch it again, and you know, for a while. Okay, I can get, I can understand that. I yeah, guess. like it's just, it, it was just kind of, yeah, it's just, it's just ugly, and it's, <laughs> I don't like that. Um, I just like, like I said, I just like watching people, you know. It, to me, like some a movie like this is just kind of a meditation on how people exist in their own worlds and sort of learn to you know externalize their passions in a way that makes sense, not necessarily I, to us, I but almost, to them. I get like I said, and then this <laughs> might just be again like how I think it's style. I think it's almost not even about the people in the movie. I because you don't go into depth. I mean, you get right. You get. I think it's more about. I could be projecting I'm, Errol Morris' other movies onto this movie. I think when I'm Errol sure. Morris is actually like, you know, he is always finding humans fascinating, and he's, you know, he he likes sort of testing people. I think in this one, what he, you know, the sort of the risk the jumpy takes is you as a viewer are going to make connections between these wildly disparate things, and right because I'm not going to give you enough time for your mind to settle down, so it's going to be forced to leap to its own conclusions, and I'm mm-hmm. not going to give you people uh you know i'm not i'm gonna give you a little taste of uh you know when uh you know we'll have the naked mole rat uh guy talk about insects uh how they're they act like insects and then we'll have the guy talk like insects but i'm not going to make many of these jumps for you i'm just going to give you sort of the pieces of the puzzle and just because of how the human mind works you're going to make the leap um well no problem with that yeah no no i I like that it's interesting um, I, and again, if, I think just the stylistic it's, choice. It's an extra. It's a, I think it's more of an exercise than it is like a fully realized film. And that mm. there's there's nothing wrong. I with I felt it. like by the final shot was a fully realized film. I but what is he saying? Hmm. Like it's. Well, I mean, like I said, with just him walking into the wind and him sort of romanticizing that element, I think it just goes back to what I said earlier about how these individuals sort of cling to their profession in a way that defines who they are. Well, you don't, but the problem is you don't really know who they are outside of it. So you are making that leap, but you don't know yeah. how the robotics guy actually is. You don't know, like, Tokyo. I, I think they are their professions in a way. Yeah. Right. In, 
especially the guy the 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 guy managing the garden i mean he's dedicating the rest of his life to that that project absolutely i mean the thing i like is seeing um an mit roboticist talking about his his project and then cutting to an old man talking about why he prefers to use hand shears versus electric shears um (laughs) that i love like just this idea of um varying levels of importance all being portrayed on the same level i guess right um giving the the uh that guy is his as much uh um respect and and uh appreciation of his art and as the other guys um and then having them all kind of you know support each other absolutely yeah. yeah and i like how even the professions they're not even you know when i really think about it, they don't even really seem that random in that you have one person who is clearly you know robotics that has sort of implications of the future and he talks about that mm-hmm. you have one person who is talking about something that feels like uh, he, he in his movie he's in a he's part of a bygone era and he's like the last of his kind and you know after him there'll be no more hand shears it'll all be electric trimmers and and then you have the guy who is doing something that you know the audience will most likely find very distasteful um, and will actually have very strong emotions against what he's doing. Um, and there's one guy who there's probably a 99.9% chance that if you asked any member of the audience before they watched the movie, just like, would you be interested in hearing about naked mole rats? The answer is no. <laughs> Fuck no. Like, what the hell is that? That's, it's, yeah. It seems like, like, the, like he chose something that is the most obscure animal. You know, I, if it was a guy who is obsessed with bees, it wouldn't be the same. It's... Um, so they're even as they're you know they're all disparate people, but they're all being like you said they're all being put on the same level. Um, yeah, yeah I, which I, which I, I guess admire. I, I guess I do appreciate this movie more than I thought. Um, uh, I think I, it's I guess and I guess that's sort of a that's sort of an as, that's sort of a returning recurring aspect of Errol Morris's films in that as you roll them around in your mind. And again, this is a film I saw about you know seven hours ago. I watched both. Both of the films we're talking about just today for the first time. So as you roll them around in your mind, they sort of just, you know, take on new angles and new light. And um, Well, I, I saw Gates of Heaven when I was 22. Yeah. And I didn't well, respond I mean, if it, to it, it then. And then, like, you, I saw yeah. it, you know, almost a decade later. And then all of a sudden I had a completely different reaction to it because I changed. You know, right. and that could happen with, as well with you and a couple of his movies. Right. It's You put stuff into it. And I think that's a big part of... I, and I, that's why I sort of feel like that this movie is him sort of playing with the audience and and like forcing them to put more into it than they would ever normally have to. Because um, if you're not, if you don't if you're not an active viewer, this movie might as well just be white noise. Mm-hmm. Like if you're not going to put the pieces together, it's basically just like someone threw four movies on the floor and said there, you yeah. know. Uh, well, that's why I kind of like do- the documentary genre. Is it's like it says, "Hey, pay attention to this story well, I'm about well, to tell." This yeah, person, I'm but I think on. a lot of documentary filmmakers they have a point of view that they want to express, and whether or sure. not they suggest it or they just outright say it, um, they usually are not as just just uh, purely evocative 
as right. Errol Morris. I mean, and this is I, I want to reference a film that I can never remember the name of. I think it also has a score by Philip Glass. It's Koyan's Koyaniskatsi. Yeah, like it's Koyaniskatsi. It's, it's, it's not on that level of the avant-garde, but it is sort of in a similar boat. Right. Um, I, I think with this maybe this film and and definitely something like Vernon, Florida. There's there's this uh, need to have a a um, plot or a, a reason or a, you know I, I think of Frederick Wiseman's films, I, which I brought up before that you know he has this career of just bringing his cameras into um, a, a high school and filming it and you know creating an hour and a half movie that just shows the ongoings, everyday ongoings of a high school and interesting stuff comes out of that or a zoo or a meat plant packing uh, or a slaughterhouse, sorry, or a prison or whatever. And I, I think that something like Vernon, Florida is similar in that it's just pointing a camera at a person and just spending a bit of time in that person's head and, and seeing where that leads to. And, and it might not necessarily have three acts or uh, a clear destination but it's it can be an interesting experience and an enlightening experience and i I think you can see that in his first person series where his have you guys seen that that i that was the one i didn't see the first person and i haven't seen the last two films he's made okay well his first person series is just you know there were some hour episodes some half hour episodes where yeah, some of them are, are kind of plot-driven or based around uh, an event or something, but others are just spending time in, inside people's heads because they are interesting people and just seeing what you can learn from them, from their perspective. Like, you you want to see uh, uh, people who approach things from a different perspective than your own because you would like to be enlightened by them and learn from them and take what you can take from them. That's valuable and, and apply that to your own life and your own line of thinking. And I think that, that, you know, um, can be said about fast, cheap and out of control. Like it might not have a direct goal or, or end in sight, but I, I do, did find these guys fascinating it's it's interesting how those two films have completely opposite styles and yet are basically arriving at the same conclusion. Yeah. Um, well, that, that summation that D- Jay just had, and uh, I don't mean to have a Mark Maron moment and all of a sudden make this about me, but I think he sort of summarized why I'm so interested in becoming a therapist and that like I find going inside people's minds <laughs> obviously really fascinating and a way to sort of learn th- about myself as well and i feel like when i watch documentaries it's not necessarily like me projecting myself into the character but just learning something about them to me even if i don't relate to their plight or you know can identify with what what they've what they're doing or what they've gone through like that uh documentary the the weird and wild and wonderful whites was that that documentary that Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, my the wild, my... wild and wonderful whites of yeah. West Virginia. Yes, have you seen that, Patrick? Uh, it's on my queue. Okay, yeah, that's something where I'm watching it and I'm d- damn near despising the people that I'm watching because of their behavior. 
But at the same time, it's just an interesting observation process of like, wow, these people are so the opposite of how I would be in the, in the world. So it's interesting just to gain that perspective and see how different people live in that way. And I, I get that not nearly to that same level, but I get that with fast, cheap, and out of control. Um, and I do want to talk about Vernon, Florida. Yeah, definitely. Vernon, Florida, I watched Thin Blue Line, um, and then Vernon, Florida was the second. No, actually, I'm sorry. I watched Fog of War um, a, like a week before both mm-hmm. of these films, um, and which is, I think, as far as Errol Moore's films go, it's rather straightforward. Um, and while it's actually it, my least favorite. Of his I, films. I, ra- I did rather enjoy it, but as someone who uh, is, you know, sadly rather ignorant of history, a lot of it was new to me that probably someone who is aware of Robert McNamara um, would, you know, would probably just find uh, not as interesting. But, um, okay, so Vernon, Florida was one of the first films I saw, and and I just, it felt... And maybe it's, again, just I didn't find it interesting and it's completely just subjective opinion about who we – I felt like if I, – I felt like I did, it wasn't interesting there, and the and he – I feel like he he interviewed like about half a dozen people. Um, he named, named it after the town and like the juiciest footage is the people just saying – like horribly inaccurate and stupid things like like the person bringing out a turtle and saying no this is a gopher you got to watch out because <laughs> it will dig holes and like the people who are saying the sand is growing in the jar and and uh and i just i had this very distinct feeling that you know he was just mocking them and that it was and that what he found interesting about it was was just wow these people are you know when when your life is when you're so cut off from the rest of the world you just you were really dumb and i and then i, I so i i sort of i sort of asked um my friends on my film friends on the internet and they all had sort of varying you know responses but uh i i was led to the story of the making of the film which you discussed earlier about um how he wanted to do a documentary um about people who are amputating themselves for the insurance money mm-hmm. um and apparently what happened was they – he found out quickly that they weren't going to talk about committing crimes on camera. Right. So – and then they threatened his life. So do you think he made this and attacked movie him. as an afterthought it, from uh, – Now, when the- I, I – obviously, I didn't know the story watching it, but I did feel something was off. And then after reading that story, it almost felt like that movie was just sort of a spiteful, like, kind Response. of fuck you to the town where – I'm going to call this movie, name this movie after town, but I'm going to only represent like six of the craziest and most inane people I can find. And, mm-hmm. and I even read a, a, a lecture he did at Harvard where he discussed it and he talked about how the, you know, um, he talked about how it was in some ways a film about self-deception. Um, and he, you know, and he referred to the place as a town that no one in their right mind would ever want to live which again doesn't make me think like it's a genuine affection towards these people. I just it feels like uh he's mocking them. And again, it also could be the two films I the only two fil- Errol Morris films I'd watched before this with Thin Blue Line and Fog of War. So this is the first I was introduced to his uh you know to to his sort of style of filmmaking that he did when you know Gates of Heaven and Fast Sheep Out of Control and mm-hmm. where it's you're sort of left to draw your own conclusions 
Um, so I and I do I do own it now. I I bought it uh, sight unseen. So I probably will want to watch it again just to see how I feel. But I feel like I don't know. It just it just it feels mostly mean spirited to me. It doesn't feel like he has a lot of genuine uh, interest in people talking about like earthworms. You know. <laughs> Well, that's just it. It's like I didn't have that response that you had to it, although I don't feel as emotionally invested as as I did with something like Gates of Heaven. I don't know if it's just the running time or if it didn't feel like everything connected outside of how weird the characters were. Um, I mean, I just there were moments where I I definitely kind of tuned out, uh, you know, and that's something that doesn't normally happen in an Errol Morris movie, but that just, maybe the conversations they were having weren't engaging enough. I felt the, enough. Tur- the turkey hunter. But I like the turkey hunter. <laughs> I did. I, I really did. I don't know. I mean... I don't know. I, again, like you said, Jay, it could very well be projecting. Um, but I... It's inevitable, I think. Um, but I, I guess what I would ask you, is there anything in the film that, like, that you would cite as sort of specific evidence that... That he is not mocking them. Because obviously it's open, you know, to interpretation, and that's how he makes his films, that you sort of interpret them as you will. But what sort of in the film sort of makes you think that it is not mocking them? Uh, I would say probably that the film exists. I, I really cannot see a filmmaker spending however many months he lived there and however many months editing it and however many months I assume touring with it and so on just to make something that exists to mock. No, like I, no, <laughs> I, I mean, it just seems like, um, what was the intent more comedic than I, I think there is definitely comedy in the film. Right. Um, but I, I don't see the uh, um, sort of negative, uh, uh, you know, making making it sound like it was some sort of revenge <laughs> on them. For <laughs> that's yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Well, there. Are I, li- I don't. I don't see a, a, any filmmaker um, committing their time to a project just to do that. Um. And, you know, maybe he had a lot of the footage shot already by the time things fell through. I, I don't know. I don't know the deal, de- details right. of that. And, and I, I think that's actually another interesting – I don't want to interrupt you, but just real quick. I think it's another sort of interesting thing about documentaries, which is sort of problematic that because, like we talked about, you know, opening of the show, about how things just sort of take their own shape and you're, you're just – you're just sort of trying to rally them as opposed to, you know, fully sculpting out what they will end up being. It's almost, unless you're, you know, unless it's something like a Michael Moore film where it's very clearly an essay as opposed to a document of something, it, I do admit that it, it seems a little, uh, a little, um, I can't think of the right word, but basically unsubstantial. Like it's hard to prove, uh, a, a filmmaker's intent in a in a film, especially a film like Vernon, Florida. Yeah, I mean, I I can say when I was um, shooting 
beauty day. And like, I, you know, I've made one film. I, I have a hell of a lot to learn, but the experience I've gone through the experience of, you know, a, a subject who, you know, could be made fun of, um, agreeing to take part in a project and continue, continually reminding me, at least in the initial stages, you know, just don't make fun of my family. Don't make fun of my dogs. Uh, you know, uh, I don't want to, I want to have, he actually wanted to, to have some control over the edit in the early stages. Right. Because uh, he was concerned that I would make fun of him or do something malicious. That went away um, eventually. But my response to that would be, how is it at all in my best interest to do anything like that to you? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing this as a joke. Like, I'm serious about this. I, I, I'm a... a seriously wanting to tell a good story and this is this is not some extended prank um so you know thinking in in those terms of like being in that position of preparing to dedicate your time to to creating a film and representing people and meeting those people i think i think people who and again i've only made one film and not to sound you know i I think people who haven't gone through the process of shooting a documentary and getting to know the people in the film don't totally understand the relationship between the filmmaker and the subject right? and the responsibility. And yes, it's naive to say that all filmmakers have good intentions, but I think it's very easy to just assume that if someone on screen is coming across as goofy or as, you know, whatever, that it's some sort of malicious, um, you know, like in Beauty Day, Ralph, there are scenes in there where Ralph, you know, uses a word wrong or mispronounces a word and it's left in there because it's, it's funny and it's something he does all the time and it's who he is, but it's not like, look at this idiot. He just said idiosity, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, it's that's a, totally it's true. a quirk. Um, I think so, what what uh, I think what might sort of make it harder uh, for something like Beauty Day or even American Movie, in which most of the humor comes from these these characters, you know, in over their heads and sort of saying so. You know, I mean, one of the, one of the you know sort of the comic relief of the movie is someone whose brain has been drug addled. You know, you that could easily be seen as mean spirited, but I think sort of how those, the reason those movies may not be interpreted as such and a movie like Vernon Florida might be interpreted as such and i'm not and i i'm still not you know i'm not firm on either either way as far as vernon it was just some sort of a feeling i got but i think it's just because the kind of filmmaker errol morris is he wants you to make your own conclusions whereas you know when there is no narrative the audience is going to try to jump you know is going to jump to conclusions and there are and, you know, you're absolutely right. Never made a documentary film. And, uh, you know, so I'm but I'm so I'm only going to. And I've the, only made one. Well, so no, I'm I know. Not, I'm not saying. I'm, no, you're you know, you're not coming off like a blowhard. I'm not saying that. Right. I'm just saying um, I'm just saying I'm only going as an audience member. I'm only going to come to the conclusions based on my own sort of frame of reference, I guess. And I'm certainly interested in just the uh, the documentary filmmakers 
relationship with the subject because I think you know learning about that in in you know in either with behind the scenes or or through a commentary or um, your, your uh, documentary blog podcasts, Jay, were really enlightening. Especially that's what got me to watch the uh, the wild and wonderful whites of West Virginia was just learning about what the filmmaker himself had to endure or just like you know being you know uh, propositioned sexually by the character it's just like <laughs> like hearing that stuff adds a lot of context to watching the movie again going wow look at all this shit he had to go through to tell this story and i get the impression that errol morris yeah has good intentions like i don't i don't get that smugness you know that some people have with with his filmmaking well i mean I will I will say I definitely you know I think what you're saying Jay is probably correct but I will say that this isn't a situation where he was talking to one person for a year and right. de- had developed a personal relationship and a movie that's 50 minutes long that is as formless as Vernon Florida it's hard to make any kind of conclusion about what the filmmaking process was like and I do I mean I will fully admit that I am uh that I was you know that I that makes me ignorant for assuming, you know, the worst about it. But uh, mm-hmm. it it is just, you know, it is something that you consider when you're watching it. You want to be a, if you're if you're being an active viewer, you want to, sort, you know, especially not being familiar with Morris's style. I wanted to try to figure out what Morris was saying with the film. Yeah, um, no, and, and I think it's great you, you you even have that interpretation. It's like, I I I find some some of the over overstatements kind of like this um quote from David Ensign in Newsweek sort of called Vernon Florida a taste of Samuel Beckett uh and something mixed with Buster Keaton with the exquisitely deadpan comic timing Vernon Florida isn't sociology it's philosophical slapstick I find I find that at least the last part to be kind of interesting to look at it with in that approach but I don't necessarily see the uh the Samuel Beckett or Buster Keaton <laughs> Um, well, influences I mean, critics, that's what they I mean. got, they got to reach seven. I know. They, words. And they so, yeah, <laughs> they gotta, I know they have to, you know, pepper. They it want up. a good pull quote. Right. And that's sort of, I, I, sometimes reading those gets definitely gets on my nerves, but I'm always like, really, you, you got that interpretation. That's, I, and then, that's interesting. The other, I mean, or I, I believe side. there is a little bit of that also though, in Mr. Death. Um, yeah. In that I think Mr. Death, he's very clearly, asking you to look at and examine this person who is in way over their head and is making is leaping to very silly conclusions um i never knew the thing i learned from this movie is i never knew that there is a faction of people out there who believe that the holocaust never happened really no. you never knew that you didn't mm. know about neo nazis no I, they're in like, well, i mean not like to this like they're these, in blues brothers well, aren't just, they well no just like the, the, the his like the the lengths that he went to to try and disprove this was like wow to me. Just and I, <laughs> I mean, I, just, I don't think I don't. I definitely don't think Mister Death is a mean spirited film because no. I think he admires the character and I think the character. You know, I don't believe the character is an. I don't believe again. I'm. I always. I'm sorry. I forget the subject's name, um, but I don't believe he's an anti semite. I think he's. I think he is just sort of uh, maybe overconfident of his skills and. Mm-hmm. And sort of just nerdy and loves to and wanted to, oh, wouldn't that be an interesting experiment? And we get to go on a trip. Yeah. Well, and again, we get to sort of change 
not necessarily tones, but uh, direction from which but the, the story. But I'm just is saying, told. like, um, and there is the story of that film as well, in which uh, um, Errol Morris screened it for people, and people assumed that it was Holocaust denial propaganda, and <laughs> yeah. and Errol himself thought, I thought it was pretty clear that this person was completely wrong. Right. Um, I that I wasn't taking his side. Um, you know that implies that he not. And again, not this does is this isn't proof for or against Vernon Florida. I'm just saying that that does prove that he does not approach all of his subjects with the same sort of uh, I don't know what the right word he doesn't approach them with the um, I can't think of the right. Well, word. Well, I, I think apologize. the interesting thing is just the contrast where I have sort of like this naive idealism surrounding this character. I'm like, oh my god, cool! He made he came up with a more hum, humane way for you know. Uh, execution uh, the, the the death penalty which i don't believe in necessarily but okay he found a more humane methodology to well, that, it that seemed to be and then the... all of a sudden oh okay he doesn't believe the holocaust exists well all right <laughs> this guy is clearly... he, didn't, he didn't believe they were gassing okay right it's right but uh yeah. and he didn't um, believe the gas chambers existed correct okay and then there's the uh sort of the witnesses um in thin blue line who later sort of perjure themselves mm-hmm. um you know that sort of extended story about the about the one witness who's like i just wanted to be a detective i always loved try-. like it yeah. feels like he is picking fun at her and i mean to be fair she's a pretty well, choosing fa- to include her was... no i mean but i'm just saying she's a pretty fair target in yeah. that she is someone who sent a man to death row who shouldn't be on you know death row so right. as far as people that you're gonna pick on that's probably you know and did it for her own amusement that's fine but i'm just saying it isn't uh it isn't like he never uh, approaches his interview subjects with, um, I wouldn't say less than good intentions because he's not trying to ruin their lives, but that in, and he accepts what they say on face value. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's a only he knows what his yeah. <laughs> feelings are on that. I guess. I mean, I, I when I watch the movies, I just kind of go from my own perspective and and you know something like vernon florida i just see a bunch of guys talking about things in it from a perspective that i wouldn't normally uh you know hear um and like again the guy in the canoe talking about god like there every once in a while there will be these moments of you know um clarity coming from an area that you would not expect. I think, sure. I think that's actually very similar to um, what Jim talked about in gates of heaven of the, the woman saying the, the cat's still there, but where's yeah. the, where's the, you know, right. where, where's the right. motor? It's, and it's, I think, I think that's what he is looking for in there. And if there's comedy be, to be drawn from it, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like there's, it's not like, you know, you do a, a, a documentary about, um, you know, death row inmates, the goal of the filmmaker is you wouldn't immediately assume the goal of the filmmaker is just to get the audience to hate these people because they're on death row. And he's just, uh, you know, the, the goal is to find out what the, what that perspective is like. And, you know, Mm -hmm. what, what is it like to be on death row? How did you get there? Why did you get there? Where, where did this come from? Um, it's not just look at this guy. He's evil. He's a maniac hate him right um there's it's a very complex 
thing. And yeah, and, and it's, Florida, it's, it's extremely it's subjective. I, I yeah. will definitely admit. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that um, to simply say, well, people like that just can't be on film because exactly. they'll, they'll sound like idiots and it will automatically mean that we're making fun of them. You know, is that's what I like is that it's like, you know what? I'm not going to I'm not going to put the academics on screen to talk about life and what God is and what God means to you or me. I'm going to get this, you know, old man in a canoe in Vernon, Florida to shed some light on the subject and do it in a way that is much more romantic and and interesting, I think. Yeah. yeah. One I mean the the main <coughs> Excuse me main positive thing I got from that film was sort of the, it, it was a totally, you know, what, what Jim was saying about just sort of peek into another life. It was an entirely, you know, and I, I think that's sort of one of the interesting things about America is how we're actually like several countries that we just sort of forced to be lumped <laughs> in as one. Cause it, it is like entirely foreign to me, that kind of way of living and that sort of way of thinking and that sort of speed that you would take life. Um, that, you know, and that, and that, P, and I mean, it even opens with the story of practically of immigration, <laughs> in which the man from Chicago said, "You know what? Let's just get out of here and let's let's find someplace nice and peaceful." Uh, you know, so no, I definitely, I definitely see merit within it. Um, I, I, I didn't think, find it as interesting as the other ones, but again, that's that's more sub- subjectivity, and I think, I think. And I think the reason Morris sort of stubbornly refuses to give context, he doesn't tell, he doesn't ask the, you know, the person canoeing or uh, the person, whether it's the person canoeing who accidentally, you know, accidentally or maybe not accidentally says something really profound or the person who calls a turtle a gopher or the two people who say the sand is growing. um, Like he refuses to give them context. Um, And I think that might be where, uh, where some of the, um, misunderstandings or uh, sort of the ambiguity comes from which again is part of uh, what makes this film so special but yeah I find it interesting just because he you know it's not necessarily actively seeks certain individuals out but the, the fact that he chooses to put, put ones on screen that aren't necessarily the most articulate I think is an interesting choice to, to I mean one can make the argument that I don't find watching certain characters interesting right like i don't get a lot out of the experience i just think the choice in of itself is interesting and we've had that discussion many times on the podcast where i'm like i think it was an interesting choice for sofia coppola to make a boring movie (laughs) you know and like i i think that there is merit in just the execution of it i don't whether i i i I, I do believe there is merit but i don't think that can that will redeem a film in and of itself but Whatever. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's no. We, we don't always have to. I agree. think we touched on most of. The, we touched on all like pretty much all of his films. Well, let's briefly touch upon the Thin Blue Line simply because it had an effect on you know the actual reality of uh, of his particular case. Um, I just I just want to say that you know the one thing that stands out from for this movie really quickly is the score, and especially like his choices to highlight certain elements and certain objects like just close-ups of a tape recorder or obviously the the, the milkshake and slow mo like just little touches like that i think add um a really interesting stylistic choice 
here, and as well as you know, just the impact it had on a on a real life case as well. So, I, I think that it's arguably his best film. Um, I love Vernon, Florida, and I love Gates of Heaven, and this one is is uh, I, I kind of see those two as a pair in a way, um, but this one is is amazing. I mean the the level of cinema and a thin blue line it, it's it's you know like the whole thing of it not being nominated for a, an oscar because of the um recreations <laughs> within the film is that in itself is interesting that you know the he he pushed it to a level where people were questioning is this actually a documentary but it's such a weird thing because it's like it's a film about um you know, perception and, and seeing, yeah. reanalyzing this case from multiple angles and what you're seeing on screen and these reenactments is not anything other than a, a visual representation of what, you know, the, the different stories were. I, I, I don't understand how that's controversial. Um, I'm trying to remember in that article that you sent me, I, I think a thin blue line came up uh yeah. Some- um he uh i mean i don't it's a it's sort of long and it it's sort of an article in which i'd have to read the whole thing but um he he opened with the idea that sort of the controversy over um it not being nominated um and uh it's and he said that it's sort of a deconstruction of morris's films altogether in which he he asks, he, you know, he asks you to uh, take a second look and, you know, to question whether things are the truth and what, uh, you know, and what truth is. And and he's okay. He says we are asked to doubt our most basic capacity to apprehend truth, self awareness. Look at and then in parentheses, look at these stupid, silly rednecks. Look at this oblivious Holocaust denier. You know, Morris decides that since the subjects can't know themselves, neither can we know them. And why would we want to anyway? What a bunch of laughable morons, Morris seems to say. But is he laughing at silly rednecks or his audience? Obviously, it's disturbing to think there is no perfectly understood ideal truth. However, to make life's work of impugning, to make a life's work of impugning the search for truth is an appallingly misanthropic project. Um, I, I'll just, I'll go. I don't know. I don't, I don't agree with that, that that is, um... I de- Errol Morris is definitely interested in you know those ideas, but I don't think his I, his goal as a filmmaker is to trash the concept of truth. I mean, I, I think he's certainly interested in the concept of truth, but um, especially for Thin Blue Line, obviously, since he did his own actual investigation too. Right, you know, he, he interacted with the subjects, but also did some supplemental work on his own, which I, you know, which I find, you know, inspiring to hear that, you know, I'm not just interested in making this movie. I want to actually find out what's going on here. So that's, you know, that, and the fact that it had a very positive outcome, obviously is, you know, something to be commended for sure. And And I I I think that's a great movie. So (laughs) it comes up in standard operating procedure as well Mm -hmm. um, with the the truth in, in a photograph and in tabloid. Um, but I mean, it's not, I, I wouldn't say it's, um, the forefront. I would say it's just the, it's a theme that's present in, in, in his films and it's a starting point for a conversation. Um, 
but I, I, I don't see the, um, I just, I don't get this idea of a filmmaker dedicating his career to making people look stupid. Like, I, I don't see how that, that, I don't see how anyone could think that someone would do that. You know, like it would, it would take a pretty, um, I think a pretty crazy person to, to just dedicate their career to that. You know, I, I, and speaking outside of, you know, I guess reality TV producers or whatever, yeah. but yeah, I, but and I mean, it doesn't even jive with maybe that's much. Of, it doesn't even jive with much of his filmography. I mean, Fog of War. Uh, it's about it's you know it. If anything, it, it makes Robert McNamara more human because it asks you know because it's sort of set out to a lot of things it asks is sort of getting around to the fact of what is a war crime and mm-hmm. is this man a war criminal. Um, and the, and the, the truth is that's the very opening line of the film is Robert McNamara wondering himself. He says, I wonder, you know, and anyone who is honest with themselves will wonder, have I committed war crimes? And, um, this is the piece, by the way, is by JB Whaley. Um, and I, when he, uh, when he mentioned to me in some tweets that why he hated Errol Morris, I asked him to go into more detail. So he wrote this, um, couple paragraphs. We're going to link to it. I don't have time to really uh, read the whole thing and to respond to all of it, um, and I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to misrepresent it. So we're going to link to, we're going to link to the piece on the uh, on the blog. So, oh yeah, we're always interested in a completely different view. Absolutely, and that's. I mean, that's and that's exactly what I was looking for because I was, you know, because Errol Morris is a controversial figure, um, and I what I think makes him interesting is the controversy is very rarely over whether or not he is a good filmmaker, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think his, I think his talent is without question. Um, for most people, I think, I think his intentions, um, are more often called into question. Well, I, I, one thing that I wanted to bring up that I heard on uh, an interview with Errol Morris on the sound of young America was he mentioned at one point how, uh, I forgot what, who particularly he quoted, but it was something along the lines of, uh, love should be, you know, stop at the point of insanity. And Errol Morris's response was why? (laughs) And that's just his view on things like just go all the way, keep going and don't, you know, like let anything else get in your way. And, you know, don't let anybody tell you that you're insane. If you have some crazy wild eyed ambition in life. And even obviously I don't agree with that if it hurts or harms other people, but you know, his, his philosophy is just, you know, put all your heart and passion into something and, you know, hopefully uh, something good will come out of it. But more often than not, sometimes you get opposing views too with a lot of his films. Yeah. I, th- I believe the, the main, the main problem uh, uh, he has with um, JB Whaley has uh, Jared rather Whaley has with the, uh, with Errol Morris is that he finds um, his refusal to take a stance. Um, and uh, again, I apologize, Jared, if I'm misinterpreting, what you written, but basically, it, he he finds that as a sort of moral relativism and a refusal to, uh, you know, and just sort of, just sort of a ni- an easy nihilism, which is instead of I- instead of asking the hard questions and looking for an answer, he says there are no answers, then gives up before he tries, which is I be- I believe that is the thrust of Jared's argument. And damn, I feel like I'm in a college level yeah, philosophy I, I, class. I, I, we we are we're going long already. I don't want to. <laughs> 
I apologize to Jared. I oh, thought no. we'd go into it, but um, we had a lot to say, and it was. I mean, I'm I'm a huge fan of, of Errol Morris, and I think, you know, the, like I said, there have been moments where I felt kind of a disconnect with either a character or what I'm watching, but the majority of it, I do have. A, a, an emotional response to, or at least I admire his craft or his approach to documentary filmmaking. Absolutely. And his contribution. I mean, yeah. Oh, for sure. Hugely influential. Yeah. I mean, I obviously the same comes from me and I, I think that he, he clearly is, is an, he has an obsessive personality and I think he sees um, something in his subjects that he connects with and there's a kinship there. And I mean, there are yeah there are running themes throughout his films and and you know if you're not if you can't take anything from from uh the subjects of his documentaries it doesn't necessarily mean that nobody can or that errol morris can't right you know if you, if you think these people are goofy and funny and worthless it doesn't mean that the person sitting next to you in the theater does um you know i i've i've taken a lot from the the subjects in his film and yes i've laughed as well but it doesn't mean that um i don't find them interesting as people um i I think it's just it's more complicated than that it's too easy to just say you know here's a guy who's just pointing his camera at, at goofballs and targeting them and making a career out of it i mean it's a very easy accusation and um it's one thing to just not like his films, you know, like, um, or not feel like there's anything that's that you're connecting to from the content. But, um, I don't know. I, I, it just seems cynical to just assume that, um, if someone thinks that, uh, someone, you know, unusual is worth looking at and worth talking to that. It, it immediately means that, they just want to laugh at them. Right. Yeah. I, I, I totally concur with that. I mean, it's like the human mind is complicated. Uh, the, the way we view a movie can be complicated. And as Jay can attest to, I'm sure making a movie is complicated. Um, but that's, I enjoy that process as, you know, even if it's, uh, you know, taxing sometimes or difficult to endure. I mean, I think that, just the, the creation of of art and whether if it's documenting an actual event or the way a person views the world, to me, will always be interesting, even if I don't connect with it personally. You know, you know what it is? It's almost a class thing. It's like a... It, I, I experienced some of this with Beauty Day. I mean, mm-hmm. there were people that said I should have been in the film. And I there are people that watched that my movie and thought it was depressing because they watched Ralph and said, I don't want to become that or whatever. And the thing that Errol Morris's films is is missing, especially Burnham, Florida and Gates and heaven of heaven. And I think this is what this guy is getting at a little bit is a mediator. It's easier for an audience to sit there and watch, uh, you know, a, a, a person talking, like take whatever character from either of those films or even Mr. Death, watch this guy talking and then have a psychologist appear on screen and say, well, 
this is what he's he's going through. This is what his perspective is. And let me put it into terms that you as an audience can understand and let me separate you from them and we'll we'll you know analyze them and and Errol Morris doesn't do that. He's not interested in that. He's just he just lets the characters exist on screen. Whereas, you know, even for me, it was my film versus Winnebago Man. Winnebago Man has Ben Steinbauer, the director, in the film taking you along on this journey to meet Jack Rebney. And anytime Jack Rebney gets overbearing, Ben can step in and be the guy that you can then relate to so that, you know, you don't just get Jack and you, right. know, you don't get completely thrown by his his uh, concepts and his ideas and his attitude and everything. Um, you know, there's he's the Han Solo of, of the that documentary and Errol Morris's films have no Han Solo. So you're left to sit there and think, OK, am I supposed to laugh at these people? Am I supposed to be enamored by them? Am I supposed to be inspired by them? And people who cannot decide what they're supposed to do get pissed off because it's like and, and it's like, OK, well, you, you just must be making fun of them. So fuck this. I'm, I'm out of it. Um, I, I just you know, it's it's less interesting to me um, forcing a mediator in there. And this came up on the right. documentary blog podcast with New World Order about the conspiracy theorists and how people were put off because they thought that they were being mocked and made fun of. And the filmmakers said, you know, there were people who were suggesting putting in talking heads that would then talk about the thought process of a conspiracy theorist. But they decided not to because they just wanted a more pure experience with these people. And they certainly didn't think that they were idiots. They weren't making this film just to make them look stupid. Um, it's just tough for people to watch a movie without without that um, uh, mediator holding their hand and taking them through the psyche of, of some, you know, someone they don't understand, I think. Yeah, and that's that may be why I don't necessarily respond as favorably to the Michael Moore or Morgan Spurlock. That sort of, the, the filmmaker himself, you know, putting himself in the film and sort of carrying you along. I mean, obviously, if their personalities, you know, are charming enough, I, you know, I, I guess it's not enough to make me desp- despise that approach or, you know, disregard the movie as a whole, but it's just not something I necessarily gravitate towards because uh-huh. I like when a filmmaker doesn't talk down to me or necessarily say, let me let me guide you through this, son. You know, I mean, I, I'd rather sort of just figure it out on my own and i like that i like that approach to any film really collapse has a similar approach as well yeah where um where as the film goes on the you're sort of forced to question him on your own terms and not be told what his beliefs are in retrospect to people who are experts on the environment or experts on economics or whatever you know Mm -hmm. Um, right and i and i saw that at tiff and the Q&A, it's like you get one person standing up in the audience saying, a guy literally stood up and said, "How? what led you to make a film about such an idiot? And then <laughs> another person applauding him for, you know, uh, speaking the truth or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, that's interesting. It's It's an interesting... And, you know, I don't watch that... I don't watch Collapse and think, okay, Chris Smith has carved out this career of uh, documenting these strange characters and, and making fun of them. I mean, it's, I don't know. It, it's, uh, 
it's much more interesting to me when you just let someone exist on on the screen and uh, yeah. draw it's your a, own conclusions. It's but more again, genuine, I think. Yeah. It's, it's also one of the advantages of documentaries over fiction film is because it's unscripted, that is able to happen without the filmmaker's, um, without the f- filmmaker's opinion being in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me... And, you know, obviously there are a lot of filmmakers that do it, exploit their subjects in a way. But to me, just the choice of making the film about that person or subject says that the filmmaker is interested in them. I mean, anyone who's made a film knows that you're like I put arguably three years into making Beauty Day. And I would never do that if I wasn't truly interested in the, the subject. Uh, it's a big commitment to to you know just go into for uh, reasons that are anything other than being completely immersed in the that that subject matter. Right. Like you that. have to you have to tell the story. Like yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure he finds these people and he cannot not tell these stories. Oh yeah, and that, and you know obviously your your passion and enthusiasm for the material shows throughout the entire film and even like like i mentioned with that that montage of you know of creating the 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 mask and everything that that whole thing to me is like you know sort of like a reflection of the the how wonderfully intoxicating the act of creating something can be and that's that's something i always really respond to in in any Mm -hmm. film whether it's a documentary or otherwise I think we should wrap things up here because, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're running late, but it's cool. We're very excited to um, talk to Jay and uh, discuss Errol Morris. Let's... Burst, bursting with the scene from the scenes with content. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> very much so. And context well, yeah. as well. One thing, one quick thing before we end. There mm-hmm. is another film that I'm wondering if you guys watched. Errol Morris did do one fiction film. No, we did uh, not. No, did not get it. That's right. I forgot all about that. No, didn't the get Lou it. Diamond how, Phillips. Real film? quick. Real yeah. quick. How do you feel about it? It's not very good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty horrible. That's what I, I mean. Figured. There, there are shots in it that are Morris esque, but it's uh, yeah, it's not great. That's what I heard. Oh well, can't win them all. All right. Uh, real quick, <laughs> let's uh, give our top, top three. Yeah, top three Morris. Uh, Jim, you go first. All right. Uh, my number one would be Gates of Heaven. Number two would be Thin Blue Line, and number three would be Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. All right. Jay? My number one would be Gates of Heaven. Number two, Thin Blue Line. Number three, Vernon, Florida. My uh, my top three would be uh, number one, Gates of Heaven. Number two, Mr. Death. And uh, number three, Thin Blue Line. Excellent. Well, again, Jay, it was great having you on the show. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Definitely. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll have to do this again in the future, I'm sure. And uh, if you ever do a John Carpenter episode, oh well, that's strange uh, you that you it. mentioned that. Yeah, it's the next one. You missed it. I find it. Oh really? Yeah. I, yeah. Find, <laughs> I find it. Yeah, an odd coincidence. It, you know, it's sort of serendipitous, I guess, in a way that I happen to choose. Is am I mistaken in that Errol Morris and John Carpenter are your two favorite filmmakers? Is that they are up? Yeah, I mean. There are others. I'm sure, yeah. Well, but but they are two of my favorites, yes. John Carpenter is like almost practically at the top. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited for the next episode because we got uh, Phil Noble Jr. from Badass Digest, and he actually uh, directed a uh, documentary for, for uh, BioChannel 
on on the making of Halloween, and he so he's met you know and interviewed John Carpenter and everyone. So nice, yeah. And everybody, well, I'm excited to listen. Yeah, and everybody should check out uh, you know Jay's work. Um, I know you have some short films at Vimeo, uh, like Color Non Vidente. I have a terrible time pronouncing that. Um, yeah, it's a stupid title. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that was one of the first correspondence we, we, we had together when I went nuts over it and went, oh my God, this reminds me of The Stuff Meets After Hours or something. And I, I, admit, I, meant, I sensed a John Carpenter influence, and you know that's kind of when I knew, all right, I, I, I'm going to listen to whatever this guy has to say when it comes to reviewing films, So because nice. I knew he had good taste. <laughs> Well, thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and obviously visit uh, filmjunk.com and the documentaryblog.com for um, more of Jay's work in written form and podcasts. Um, and is there a website for Beauty Day? Yeah, it's beautydaydocumentary.com. Cool. Now, real quick, um, uh, is are there more screenings happening or what's the future of that? Um. It's screening. I'm going to be at the Flyway Film Festival in Pepin, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. uh, from October 19th to 24th. So it's screening there. I think there's a screening at in, in uh, Norway. Oh, <laughs> I don't can go. make it out there. Um, but I mean, we're up here. It's it's on HBO Canada right now, and it's winding down from that it's on demand and it's going to be coming out on blu-ray uh and dvd i think in november oh Um, yeah we're still hoping to get some some sort of um, uh u.s distribution there's been some talk about some things but we're still working on that so all right looking forward to that everybody should buy it for christmas yeah (laughs) yes get it for your family (laughs) definitely awesome all right, guys, visit us at uh, directorsclubpodcast.com. Email us at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you in a couple weeks for the John Carpenter episode. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. Town is none of your business. As long as I'm living here, it is. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here. This mic is really sensitive. Are you rustling <laughs> just opening something? a bag of candy? <laughs> <laughs> I won't open candy.